What is life? What is death? What is love? Does it endure from lifetime to lifetime? From one reality to the next? These are all interesting and intriguing questions that this amazing story, well, not exactly trying to answer, will pose more questions to you, baby. <laughs> well, this is one of my favourites, and it's taken me almost a year to read the entire thing, and now we have it here in its full glory. So, my dear friends, I do so hope you have the chance to sit back and relax with your favourite drink and listen, because this one's very, very special. Here we go. The afterlife can be confusing and terrifying. People think that death is the worst thing. But imagine not being able to die because you're already dead. And anyone holding a grudge against you can do so for eternity. It's also harder to hide in the afterlife. I know this because I have personal experience trying to run away from a crazy dead person while being dead myself. Even now. I'm not sure how long I have until he finds me, and I have to start running again. <laughs> I thought the afterlife was supposed to be peaceful. So much for rest in peace. Before I begin, let me make this clear. I did not do anything to make this person hate me. Okay, I guess that could be a matter of opinion, depending on how you look at it. But it's not like I knew the person in life, and I didn't kidnap their dog in death or anything like that. He hates me, though. He hates me with a burning, fiery passion that refuses to be quenched with any amount of blood he drains from my body. <laughs> yes, you can still bleed in the afterlife. You can't die from it, but you can bleed until you pass out. Then you wake up hours later, blood refilled like a water bottle, ready to be drained again. Before you ask, yes, you can also feel pain. You just can't die, no matter how much you wish you could. Why would you want to die if you've already died, you ask? Simple. To make it stop. I'm sure that I'm not the only one with a tale like this. But I'm not sure how many other people have been able to reach out to the world of the living and share their story. Possession is trickier than you might think. It's not just a matter of forcing your way into someone's body and taking control of their life as if the body was your very own. There are a few different methods, including some ritual being performed and botched by someone who still needs to breathe. Blood loss in a cemetery... Establishing a connection over a period of time, and so on. Sure, you can inhabit your own corpse, but I wouldn't recommend it. It never goes as expected, and it's easy to get trapped by the fleshy, decaying cage that used to be the living you. Because you're technically dead, you need a different type of sustenance. Specifically, you need human parts. Skin, muscle, blood, fat, sinew, anything that can be consumed. Depending on how long you've been deceased, your appetite could be simple, or it could be widespread. 
Spirits who are able to quickly hop back into their bodies within a few hours or days tend only to need blood to survive. They also suffer the least amount of damage to their body or brain and can pass as normal, aside from their lust for sanguine fluid. The obvious term that would seem to match these abominations is vampire. They aren't exactly vampires, though, as there are really creatures of the night out there. I guess if you considered vampire as a species, it could be broken down into different breeds with different methods of becoming one. Personally, from what I've learned after dying, I think that most vampire legends and lore have truth to them. They're just different breeds, except the ones that sparkle. Blood-drinking fiends don't have shiny glitter in their skin, no matter how they became what they are. Those who have passed on and ambled back into their personal cadaver after some time has passed are subject to a craving for any and all meat that can be torn from a human skeleton. Hell, there are even instances where they will gnaw on bones until the bones splinter and are crushed enough that they can be swallowed. With this hunger, the body is likely to have already started some sort of decomposition. You would probably smell no matter how many baths you might take, if you were even able to take a bath. Skin could be rotting away and torn. Your motor skills would leave much to be desired, and your mind wouldn't be able to develop speech or show any intellect you might have had when truly alive. Are you familiar with the term zombie? The easiest way, however, to reach out is by having a living person open themselves up to you willingly. It's still exceedingly tricky, but if you can find a medium or someone who is sensitive to the other side, it's the most uncomplicated method. Mediums aren't common, and it can take years to track one down. Even then, they still have to allow you to step into their being and share space. Not that most of this information on possessions is really relevant, but now you have some sort of idea. If you come across someone you thought you had heard passed away, or even someone you might have attended the funeral for. Now, to my own tale, and what I'm here to share with you. Dying has become a vague memory for me at this point. I can tell you that I was walking across a bridge when something snapped and it collapsed into a river. I can also tell you that I had been on my phone with my wife, who was waiting for me on the opposite end. We were going to have lunch together, and since our two jobs weren't far apart, I decided to just walk. I felt there was no point to getting in my car, exiting the lot, driving two minutes and then spending another five or more looking for a place to park, having lunch, then doing the same thing in reverse. So, there I was walking across the bridge, no big deal, when something suddenly broke. The last thing I remember before being surrounded by water was telling my wife to stay there. Whatever had broken made a loud noise, and I instinctively wanted to keep my wife safe. Then my body was plunged into the chilly water below, and I wished that I'd taken those swim lessons when I was six. When you're alive, 
You think that meeting the Grim Reaper or Jesus or God or, or anything of that nature is going to be some breathtakingly momentous occasion? Maybe it is for some people, but it's lost its weight with me. Don't get me wrong. When it happened, I was aghast, and the stammer that I'd been plagued with since I was little returned. But at this point, you see it so often that it stops being a big deal. Now, I'm not sure what you believe in, but when you die, it's all the same thing that greets each and every one of us. The only difference is the appearance. For me, I saw a reaper. <laughs> yes, you read that correctly. I said, a reaper, not the reaper. Did you really think that with over seven billion people in the world, there was only one being to cater to every death? <laughs> no. I don't know exactly how many there are, but I do know that they are broken up into departments by religion and belief. For me, it was a tall, gaunt brunette man in a black suit and tie. He didn't wear a robe. He didn't carry a scythe. He was, however... So thin that he looked skeletal. It wasn't exactly an emaciated look, as you might expect from a painfully skinny person. Somehow, it just seemed natural, like it was a normal appearance. His three-piece suit was entirely black, save the tie, which was a stark bone white. The conversation was fairly simple. He introduced himself as Frank, <laughs> yeah, I know. A grim reaper named Frank. He informed me that I was dead. That he was taking me to the afterlife. Yada, yada, yada. It was a spiel I'm sure he'd recited day in, day out for centuries. My, my wife! Was the first thing I uttered to him. He had looked at me with a raised eyebrow. Wife? Oh, right, you're Alexander R. Grant, the bridge guy. Recognition spread across his face in the form of a small, sheepish smile. I was getting ahead of myself, thinking you were Roger Johnson. <laughs> Sorry about that. I stared at him silently. As much as I knew I should have been focused on the fact that I was dead, and had left my wife to go on living all by herself, my thoughts broke to give way to one. I did not want to be known as the bridge guy. Your wife is Annie M. Grant, correct? He double-checked with me. I nodded and he continued dismissively. Uh, yeah, she's fine. No worries. I immediately felt less than confident that this Frank character knew what he was doing. Was my death really going to be messed up by a reaper that couldn't keep his dead people straight? What if I ended up in the pits of fire with a pineapple being shoved where the sun doesn't shine, instead of relaxing on a cloud? Not that I automatically assumed I would go to whatever kind of heaven there was, but I think you get the picture. Frank offered a smile. It wasn't a kind, welcoming smile. It was more the kind of smile you would be greeted with on the face of a seedy, used car salesman that really needs to sell that 15-year-old Pontiac that looks like it's been used as a muddy trash can for ten of those years. When I only raised an eyebrow and continued to stare at him, 
He turned and motioned with the hand for me to follow. I obliged and walked beside him. It was now that I finally realized my surroundings. We weren't walking amongst clouds or darkness. Rather, a world that looked the same as the living one, save two things. First, it seemed to be perpetually overcast, despite not being able to see any actual clouds in the sky. In fact, I thought I could faintly see the stars above us, just barely twinkling millions and millions of light years away. It was an odd sensation, Lee shook her. I stopped walking and looked absent-mindedly at his bony face. I saw his phony grin fade into an expression that made me think he actually felt bad for me. I've been there, Alexander. I know it's difficult to leave someone behind. Xander, please. I figured everyone in life called me Xander. Surely the Grim Reaper could in death. Can you at least tell me if she'll be okay? Yes, he answered, emotionless. Annie will eventually move on and remarry. I felt my heart sink and begin to break. I couldn't imagine her with anyone else. But at the same time, I didn't want her to spend the rest of her years alone and mourning me. I wanted her happy, even if it meant someone else loving her the way I no longer could. Maybe they would even love her better. I wasn't perfect after all. Yet, the thought that she could be happy again didn't soften the blow. After that, it's an unimportant blur. Frank led me to the afterworld, a place that looked almost the exact same as the previous plane, with the main difference being people. There weren't cars or any type of vehicles, but there were people bustling around like it was New York City. Instead of skyscrapers... There were countless apartment buildings, all ranging in height from three floor up to ten. Frank led me to my own apartment while explaining rules and portal markets. Short buildings that looked like they housed office suites. One can usually be found every couple of miles or so. Quick explanation for what a portal market is. It's a building where you can find doors to anywhere you want to go. Tired of the city? Step through a door to the country, or a beach, or the moon even. They can also be used to quickly travel across the city, or to another city of the dead, even foreign regions. The markets can be used to instantly access these different places, without the pesky issue of having a passport. This is where you go to slip into the real world as well. But access is restricted to newcomers, and your living well privileges can be revoked at any time, whether temporarily or for eternity, if you did something especially messed up. If you're unfortunate enough to lose access, the door simply won't open for you. And so far I haven't heard of any way around that. This part of my tale is boring and uneventful. And I know you don't want, or need, to hear about how I moped around for ages. Discovered the time difference, travelled to other places, or got the hang of being dead in general. Something to note, though, is that not a day went by. 
that I didn't find myself spending at least a few thoughts on Annie. Frank and I ended up becoming friends when I found out that he lived in my building. He actually was a pretty cool guy, and we'd hang out and play video games or tennis when he wasn't reaping the souls of the recently deceased. Let me tell you, if you've never seen a thinly veiled skeleton hopping around on a tennis court, it is definitely something to behold. I couldn't stop laughing for most of the time when we first played. Let's jump forward a few years. Fifty-eight living years, to be exact. I awoke to a loud knocking on my door. Yes, the dead sleep. We don't have to, but many of us do it out of routine. And many times, boredom. We also breathe, even though our bodies no longer need oxygen. It's something like an unbreakable habit. I groggily shuffled to the door and opened it to see Frank standing there. He had a strange look on his face, as if he was excited about something, but also worried and apprehensive at the same time. I saw he was shifting his weight from the balls of his feet to his heels, over and over. Eh, what's up, man? I nodded to him. Ah, uh, so I was doing my job. He began speaking excitedly. And I was reaping the soul, you know? I rolled my eyes a bit when he paused. Yes, Frank, you reap souls. Right, so little old lady passed away and I was doing my thing when she asked me something that surprised me. He paused again and I gestured for him to continue. One of his hands raised to rub the back of his neck nervously. She wanted to know if I knew someone who had died years ago. Uh, okay. Is this going to be another one of those <laughs> I tripped over a cat because I was distracted stories? Or someone wanting to meet a celebrity. You wouldn't believe how death doesn't change a fan's yearning to be loved by their idol. Frank really had tripped over a cat too. Even in the afterlife, we have domestic animals. They're usually attached to the people who owned them and loved them in life. If their human hasn't died yet, they've been known to just roam around the streets. While leading a soul to their own home one day, Frank had fallen face first on the ground when an orange tabby snaked himself between Frank's feet. <laughs> he told me about it later, embarrassed, but I just wished I could have been there to see it. Uh, no. He refuted quickly, then continued on with his story. We don't usually get requests to be matched up with someone, and it's even less likely we are able to do this for them. Usually people have to find each other on their own, Crazy enough, though, I knew who she was talking about. I'd been the one to bring him over. I was getting tired of his constant pauses, so I told him, Oh, that whole pausing for dramatic effect thing only works if it's not done over and over in a single story. This time he rolled his eyes at me, and his lips spread into a huge, genuine smile. He took a step to the right and revealed what was behind him. My jaw dropped. I don't mean figuratively either. I mean, I stood there, speechless, mouth agape, 
unblinking, staring at the figure in the hall just beyond the door. I was frozen, my mind failing to process what I was seeing until the spectre took a step forward and pushed my chin up, closing my mouth. A giggle sounded in the air. Before I realized what I was doing, I reached out and grabbed Annie, showering her in a flurry of kisses and squeezes. It was Annie. It was my Annie. She was dead and I couldn't be happier. I stopped and looked at her face, still struggling to believe she was really here. Her countenance wasn't that of when she died. Instead, she had reverted back to the age I had last seen her. Knowing that the dead take the form of when they were the happiest, I wondered if this could have been because of me. I know my life had been happiest right before it was cut short, and that was entirely due to having her. When she smiled at me, I cupped her face in my hands and kissed her longer and deeper than I ever had. My Annie was here. My beautiful, wonderful Annie. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, um, just go this way. We heard Frank murmur, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw him point down the hall. I uh, have to go do uh, anything else but watch the live-action porno that's about to unfold. We hardly noticed him walk away. I pulled her into the apartment and kicked the door shut, not wanting to take my hands off of her. (laughs) Here's another time when you really don't need the details. To put it simply, we spent days in bed, wrapped up in each other, making love like a couple of teenagers with an endless supply of coffee and energy drinks. Forgive me while I leap once again to years later. Annie and I were happy. We had spent every day together, making up for lost time. We didn't talk much about her life after I had left it, but I knew that she remarried, had one child, and when she passed away, three grandchildren. She didn't like to talk about it because she felt guilty, but she told me on a couple of occasions that she had a good life and was content, but had never been as happy with her second husband as she had been with me. I won't lie, this boosted my ego immensely, even if I wouldn't admit it. Through all of the love we shared and years we spent together, one thing never dawned on either of us until it was too late. It was late one afternoon, when there was a pounding on the door. Annie remained curled up on the couch while I answered it with a smile. Instead of a polite hello, I was greeted with a large fist colliding into my nose and knocking me flat on the floor. I propped myself up on an elbow and tried to focus on the mass of a man now standing near my feet. Once my vision stopped swimming, I was able to see the tall, broad-shouldered stranger clenching his fists over and over. I heard Annie jump up off the couch and rush to my side, but stop 
as soon as she saw the man. Herbert! Annie gasped. Annie! The hulking man said curtly, motioning towards me. Who the fuck is this? Herbert, this is Alexander, my first husband. I could hear the reproach and hesitation mixed in her voice as she responded. This is your first husband? He asked so incredulously that I felt insulted. Maybe I didn't look like a football player, but it's not like I was a lanky, pimple-faced dweeb either. Hey, at least my name isn't Herbert. I jeered at him as I pushed myself off of the floor to stand face to face with my attacker. He was a good three or four inches taller than me, and the way he was fuming reminded me of the Minotaur from Greece. Annie slipped an arm around my waist, taking a moment to look at the blood gushing out of my nostrils and onto my shirt, before turning back to the bull man. He was huffing, but didn't respond. Marriage is until death do us part, and death parted us, Herbie. I'm sorry, but no matter the good life you and I shared, I can't deny that Alexander is my soulmate. I smiled down at her and wrapped my arm around her shoulders, kissing the side of her head. Hey, look, man, I started, turning back to him, but was cut off by a large, meaty hand gripping me by the throat. Annie tried slamming her fist on his arm repeatedly, but he shoved her away, and she toppled over the arm of the couch, thankfully landing on the couch cushions and not the floor. I felt my feet lift up and my toes slide along, barely touching the floor, as he took booming step after booming step until I was shoved against the wall. I struggled, clawing at his hand, when his grip only tightened. So, Mr. First Husband, let me make this crystal clear. You died. Annie moved on. She married me. We had a son together. We have grandkids together. She died with me next to her. That's right. Me, not you. She is mine. You've had your time to spend in this young man's fantasy. Now it's time to grow up. She will be coming with me, and you will not stop it. Annie scrambled to stand up. I glimpsed rage in her eyes as she strode purposefully towards us and used the length of his outstretched arm to situate herself between the two of us. Put him down, she demanded, punctuating every word. He looked down at her face and glared, but she held fast. That was my Annie, the little spitfire. We remained locked in this position, the three of us, for at least another minute, before he lowered his arm and released my neck. I gasped for air and bent over, choking and coughing. No one said a word. Herbert spun on his heels and stalked out of the door, slamming it shut so violently behind him that I heard the wood of the door frame splinter. <sighs> what? The hell was that? I demanded. Annie turned around to face me, her expression instantly softening, 
as she touched my face and gazed at my neck. Are you okay? Her fingertips moved from my face to my neck. I nodded. <laughs> yeah, I'm already dead, remember? Annie sighed deeply and frowned. Oh, I'm sorry, Xander. I didn't even think of what would happen when Herbert died. I guess I just wanted to pretend that that part of my life was just a dream. It's okay, it's over now. I straightened all the way up, pressing my back into the wall. Annie made a face that forced me to ask, What? Well, Herbie is the type that does anything to get what he wants. He used to work for the government doing who knows what. I wasn't allowed details. My eyes widened. The government not allowed details. Was he a damn hitman or spy or torture specialist or something? Hey, maybe that's changed. He hasn't worked for at least a decade and a half. And maybe in death he isn't so gung-ho about things. She offered hastily, seeing my expression. I looked at her my eyes still as wide as saucers. Yeah, right. I breathed the word out sarcastically. A few days later, and we hadn't heard or seen anything of Herbert the Minotaur. I started to believe that maybe he really was able to move on after he had, well, moved on. He was far from my mind when Annie and I decided to spend a day at the beach. Inside the portal market, she walked through the door first, carrying a bag full of towels and blankets. Before I could step through, however, I was yanked backwards by the shoulders and the door slammed shut in front of me. I spun around to see none other than Bullman himself. Because of our first encounter, I expected it when he took a swing at me. I ducked just in time and his fist hit air. I didn't expect the needle that was shoved into my neck with his other hand, though. I collapsed to the floor in a crumpled heap and my sight went black. When I awoke, I was strapped into a chair in a strange room. It reminded me of a police interrogation room you might see in a movie, except there was no two-way glass or table. There was just me in the chair, a single light above me and a door to my right. I pushed and pulled my limbs against the restraints, but they wouldn't budge. I'm not sure how long I sat there trying to figure out how I would get out of this before the door opened. I watched as a tray with various objects was wheeled in, followed by Herbert. Oh good, you're awake. He stopped the cart near me, then retreated back to the door to pull in a chair that he placed directly in front of me. Now, Xander. May I call you Xander? He asked, picking up a box cutter and examining it in the light. No, I answered shortly. Okay, Alexander it is then. He placed the box cutter back on the tray and lifted a medical saw. Alexander, I'm not sure what Annie has told you, 
but I used to work for the government in a very specific capacity. He set the bone saw down and looked directly in my eyes. You're a torturer, I'm guessing. I spat out flatly. The Minotaur man made a check mark with his finger and smiled. <laughs> Correct. You're not as dumb as you look. I stared blankly at him. Without another word, he retrieved a syringe and shoved the needle unceremoniously into my arm. Dropping it back onto the tray, he stood up, looming over me. That was heparin, a blood thinner. We want to be sure that we make a mess. I always liked making a mess. His smile reminded me of Freaky Fred from Courage the Cowardly Dog. You do realize that we're already dead, right? I blurted out. Oh, Alexander, I don't care about killing you. I just want to make you bleed. Extra points if I get you to scream. There was a malicious glint in his eyes as he lifted a small knife from the cart and began carefully making an incision above my left eye. I cried out in pain, blood trickling down my face. I blinked rapidly. I yelled profanities at him. I spat at his face. He paused for a moment and wiped the dribble off his forehead and cheek, then pushed the blade calmly back into my skin. Eventually, he made a circular cut around my entire eye. My vision blurred with red, blood dripping and leaking over my pupil. The psychopath then began sliding the tip of the knife under my skin by means of the open slices. What the fuck are you doing? I yelled at him. My outburst startled him, and he stopped suddenly. Oh, damn, you're right. He responded like a light bulb just clicked on. He set the knife down with the blade propped on the edge of the tray, so I could see my own blood covering the shiny surface. Herbert left for a moment and returned with a full-length mirror he placed against the wall directly in front of me. The chair he had sat in briefly was obscuring the view, so he moved it and I was able to see my entire reflection. He retrieved the knife and stood to the side of me, motioning to the mirror. There you go. Now you can see everything. His words were as cold as ice, and I wondered how Annie could ever have been interested in him. I screamed out in pain and terror as he began again to push the blade underneath my flesh and wiggle it around. After ten minutes... I was looking at my bloody face in the mirror. The skin surrounding my left eye peeled off and tossed to the floor. I began to weep, salty tears stinging where they met the wound. For the next few hours, Herbert would do the same with the other eye, liberate four of my fingers, demonstrate what it felt like to have an Achilles tendon ripped into, and attempt to find out how deep my navel would really go. He did this last one with a piece of glass. Somehow I didn't pass out until he began cutting into the back of my neck because, as he put it, 
He wanted to see if I actually had a spine. When I awoke, I was no longer bound to the chair. The skin on my face was back. My wounds were closed. My fingers had been returned, and, aside from my clothes, my body was devoid of any blood seeping from anywhere. I looked around and saw that Herbert was gone. I was still in the room. But I was on the ground and alone now. Without allowing myself time to think about what had happened, I jumped up and bounded for the door, throwing it open to reveal a long hallway. There were no other doors along the dark brown walls, and it was completely empty. I stepped out, looking around for any sign of my captor. My clothes felt stiff and the blood that had soaked into my socks and dried made each footfall crunch slightly and worry me that someone would hear me. I had no idea where I was. Once in the hall, I shut the door quietly and looked to my right. The hall ended several yards away. I looked to the left and saw the corridor curve sharply to the right. I followed fearing Herbert would appear at any second. After the bend, I was greeted with another almost empty corridor. This one had a white door at the very end of it. I made my way to it and turned the knob. I paused, waiting for someone to shove themselves through the door and tackle me to the ground. When this didn't occur, I yanked the door open and was greeted with a familiar sight. I was in a portal market. I let out a breath and bolted to the front door of the market, pushing my way outside only to discover that I still had no idea where I was. The buildings that surrounded me weren't ones I was used to seeing, and everyone was speaking a different language. I wasn't even in my own region. Shit, I whispered breathlessly to myself and walked back inside the market. Everything was in the language of this area, a language I couldn't even begin to attempt to read. I had no idea what door I needed to go through to get back. So, I did what any sensible person would do. I started opening every door. First door, mountains. Second door, a lake. Third door, a bustling street with people that still didn't speak my language. I continued on until I had exhausted the first floor completely. I went back to the lobby and followed the small staircase up to the second floor and began again. I didn't get far before I opened a door and couldn't see what was beyond it. All I could see was the towering form of Herbert the Asshole. Hearing the door open, he spun around and grinned when his gaze fell upon me. He took a step towards me. I jumped backwards and reached behind me. I felt the outline of the door opposite Herbert and glanced down long enough to locate the knob. I turned it and was greeted with a blast of hot air. I didn't waste any time shutting the door and running to the entrance of this market. The double doors were wide open, 
allowing desert sand to dance inside with the help of the heated wind. I quickly understood where I was when I saw pyramids. This sector looked like Egypt, complete with the monuments a handful of miles off. I looked over my shoulder and saw Herbert walking through the door. He had lost the smile, and his face was now twisted with a sort of direct anger I imagined a frustrated lion would possess when the gazelle moves out of his grasp. I didn't wait for an invitation. I ran. I didn't know where I was going. I just ran. Despite the infinite overcast sky, it was exceedingly torrid and sweat began to mingle with the bloodstains on my shirt and pants. Sand was displaced with each thrust I made into the ground with my feet. Several times I felt my body trying to slide out from under me, but I managed to stay upright. I ran for what felt like half an hour before I slowed down to take a stock of my surroundings. No sign of Herbert. No sign of anyone. Hell. No sign of anything except sand all around me, and the pyramids off in the distance. I was in a new place, and I still had no idea where I was. I resolved to keep walking until I found another market. As long as I kept the pyramids behind me, I would be headed in the right direction to get away from Herbert. A day and a half passed before I finally came upon a city. At this point I was glad that I was dead and couldn't get dehydrated. I stumbled through the exotic streets until I found a two-story building with double doors. At last, something slightly familiar. I walked in, and none other than the master of disaster himself was standing against the wall. He made a move to grab me, and I found myself running yet again. Oh, my body collided with a door. I fumbled to open it and fell through it and onto the hard floor. I hurriedly clambered to my feet and grabbed the knob of another door midway down the hall. I could hear Herbert's steps following me, and I knew I didn't have much time. I threw myself into another market ran up the stairs and through another random door. I continued this process over and over, until I thought I'd lost him at last, when I stopped in the lobby on my way outside to try and see where I was this time. I heard the heavy and steady steps behind me. I didn't have to turn around to see who it was. I darted through the black door to my right without realizing what the door meant. All portal markets have a single black door that stands out from the other regular wooden ones. The black door means the living world. My body felt like it was being pulled apart particle by particle before slowly settling back in a hazy form of myself. I felt like the stuff in a snow globe that falls like snow when you shake it. Still, Herbert followed me. Not being able to control my body normally yet, I was left hovering in slight confusion. The Minotaur took this pause in my escape from him 
to shove a knife into my side, slid in and out as if I was warm butter. I howled in unexpected pain and felt the blood start to ooze out. My shirt was so stained and dirty at this point that I couldn't see any of the red fluid until it began dripping onto the ground below me. I fell over, smacking the ground with my knees. I turned my head to the side to look up at the smiling piece of ghostly garbage, just in time to see a truck plow directly through him, unhindered. I coughed out a laugh, blood sputtering between my lips. When the truck passed, Herbert was no longer standing there. I somehow managed to force myself to my feet and stagger off. I didn't know where I would go. I didn't know how to get back. I was lost in the world of the living, and it felt so alien to me now. The only thing that made me hopeful was the fact I heard people around me speaking English. I've spent my days since then wandering around and running. Herbert appears around corners and in alleyways. He's still on my tail. Remembering what I had learned in the afterworld, and the rule Frank had tried to impart on me that first day, I decided to seek out a medium. I thought of Pauline. I had known her in high school, and there were rumours that she could do magic, and sometimes it seemed like she knew about things she shouldn't know. As a kid, she was teased for being weird. As a teen, she was an outcast, asked to do seances or spells for people, when others were asked to attend parties. I figured she was worth a shot. Long, boring search story cut short. I found her, and she does have a gift. She agreed to let me into her body, to write this out as a warning to everyone out there who is holding a grudge, or has one being held against them. Be careful. Death might end marriage, but it doesn't end hatred. Death can even create contempt. She pounded on the door until her fist began to hurt. And then she pounded some more. Still, the door did not open. God damn it, I know you're in there, she yelled, feeling herself on the verge of tears again. Um, no, I'm not, a voice came from behind her. Annie whipped around to see the tall man with a confused look on his face. Where have you been? Why haven't you fixed this? She was never good at trying to hide any emotion. And, given the situation, she wasn't even trying to. Uh, fixed what? Did you two break the bed or something? Because I'm not the one who fixes that. Frank looked around, not able to grasp the situation just yet. He approached his door with key in hand. Annie stepped to the side and let him unlock the door. After turning the knob and pushing it open, Frank gestured for Annie to walk through. You've got to be fucking kidding me, right? Xander! Xander is gone! She exclaimed, 
walking into the unlit apartment. Frank reached to the wall beside him and flipped the light switch before closing the door. He turned back to Annie. What do you mean? He's gone. I mean, Herbert showed up and now Xander is gone. Her voice softened a little. The anger had begun to dissipate from her tone, but it was only to be replaced by an intense worry. Herbert, okay, you're going to have to explain everything to me. Why don't you sit down? Frank gestured to a yellow sofa. As Annie seated herself on the couch, she looked around the room, finally paying attention to Frank's decor. Uh, Frank? She asked hesitantly. His eyebrows raised on his gaunt face in a questioning response. Has uh, Xander ever been in your apartment? The Reaper gave an anxious and embarrassed smile, while rubbing the back of his neck. Uh, no, no he hasn't. And I would appreciate you not describing it to him when he returns. Annie shifted her body to look at the walls beside her, taking it all in. Aside from the odd brightly colored couch she sat on, Annie could see there was an ocean blue chaise on which Frank plopped himself onto, a white coffee table and dozens of photos and posters covering the walls. She could handle the furniture, but it was the pictures on the walls that stopped her in her tracks and made her start second-guessing Frank. Each photo was different, but they all depicted the same subject. She was surprised at how many images there could be of the same nature. Her eyebrow raised as she turned back to look at Frank. Sure, if you can get him back, I won't tell him. But, Frank, baby hippos. Frank's embarrassment grew, and if it could have been possible, he would be blushing brighter pink than the tongue of the animals in his collection. Um, what can I say? Like, they're adorable aquatic elephants. Pauline! Pauline, wake up! Oh, shit. Come on. You have to wake up. I yelled and pleaded with a body that lay slumped over against the brick wall. It was a body that I'd just been in seconds before. I wanted to scream for help, but no one would hear me. At least, no one alive would hear me. I wanted to scream for help. I knelt down next to the small woman. Her long grey hair was slightly dishevelled. Her lips were parted just barely, her head to the side, ear almost touching her shoulder. She looked so frail and fragile now. I heard murmuring and looked up just in time to see a boy, who looked to be about seventeen, rushing over. I instinctively stood up. I was worried that this punk kid was going to rob sweet Pauline of the jewellery on her fingers and neck. It took me about three seconds to realize that, even if he did, there was nothing I could do about it. He passed through me and shivered for a moment, looked around and then shook his head. His friend was coming up to join him. she okay? Hey, lady, are you okay? The friend nudged her foot. The first boy rolled his eyes and knelt down where I had been. Hey, I don't know, Ty was a simple response. The boy leaned over and held a finger under her nose. 
He let his finger linger there a moment longer, frowning and moving to press two fingers against her neck. He looked over her body, and his shoulders slumped. Tyler, call 911. The friend pulled out his phone apprehensively and asked, Are you sure? What if she's just napping? Old people nap all the time, right? Tyler, stop your goddamn procrastinating and call for an ambulance. She's not breathing and I can't feel a pulse. The teenager snapped at his friend. I wasn't sure how close these two were, but it was obvious that this kid cared more about someone's life than his friend Tyler did. Oh, no, 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 I repeated, pacing back and forth. He said she wasn't breathing. He said he couldn't feel a pulse. What if she was dead? It would all be my fault. I never should have involved her. I should have thought about her age when I asked the medium to let me in. I should have asked her if she knew anyone younger. I should have asked her to write the anecdote and share it for me. I should have... My thoughts were cut off by a small voice behind me. Xander? What's going on? I whipped around to face the spectral visage of Pauline. This version of her didn't look as breakable as the flesh and blood body that sat lifelessly a few feet away. Before I could answer, she looked around and saw her body being tended to by the young man and the other on the phone, directing someone to where they were. (sighs) Herbert showed up. You weren't there, so I ran. I didn't want to leave your body behind. I think the running caused a heart attack. I felt like I was on the verge of tears. Pauline, on the other hand, looked frantic. Oh, goodness! She gasped and rushed over to her body. Pauline, wait. They said you might be... I watched her merge back into her body finishing the sentence too late. Dead. Shit. If her body really had died, this wouldn't be pleasant. I focused on her and saw her fingers twitch. The boy leaning over her still didn't notice until her chest rose and fell in a deep, heavy breath as she gasped for air. He leaned back to give her space. The three of us watched as her eyelids blinked open she looked around. Ma'am, are you okay? The one next to her asked. Before she answered, she tried standing up, pushing against the wall to help. The nice boy jumped to his feet and extended an arm for her to take. Pauline stood on shaky legs with an arm tucked through his. She patted his arm with her other hand and smiled. Yes, yes, I'm fine. Thank you, young man. Are you sure? What happened? Paramedics are on their way, he informed her, still visibly worried over this stranger. I hadn't even realized that Tyler had slipped his phone back into his pocket until now. I'm not quite sure. Pauline furrowed her brow and looked to the place where she'd awoken. Back in her body, she looked delicate to me again. Her back hunched a little with her age. Her hands trebled, and her voice was soft. But at least she was alive. At least, I hope she was alive. Ah, this is Tyler. 
The boy gestured to his friend, who gave a slight wave. And I'm James. We're going to stay here with you until the ambulance arrives and at least takes a look at you, okay? I smiled, feeling that his question was more of a statement. I saw a look on her face that made me think she was going to attempt to protest. She caught a glimpse of me, and I gave her a stern look. All right, James. Tyler. Pauline sighed, giving up before she'd even started. She shot me a look that made me wonder if she'd found anything on her astral trip. The four of us waited there for just under ten minutes. Only three that would be addressed by the paramedics. They arrived and James helped Pauline into the back of the ambulance, where her vitals began being taken, and she was asked questions. She told them that she was walking and thought she was having a heart attack, so she stepped into the alley and sat down. She explained that she must have blacked out and had been exhausted, and that when she awoke, she felt fine. The two EMTs shared a concerned look, and the one working with the equipment gestured the other one to the front seat. Ma'am, we're going to have to take you to the hospital. Are you sure you're feeling all right? He asked the small woman on the stretcher. The expression on Pauline's face said that she wasn't so sure anymore. She let out a shallow breath and shook her head. The paramedic moved to the back of the vehicle and thanked the boys for calling it in. I hopped into the ambulance just before the door shut. At the hospital, we learned that Pauline did in fact have a heart attack. At her age and in her frail state, it was severe. The doctors and nurses made sure she was comfortable while I wandered the halls of the hospital in silence. My thoughts were loud and full of guilt. I was glad that no one could see me in this moment. I didn't want to be bothered by anyone or anything. Unfortunately, and as I should have predicted, I wasn't left alone. A few blocks from the hospital, a hand reached out from a darkened corner and yanked me into the shadows. It was Herbert, of course. So, Alexander... How does it feel to have heard an old woman? His voice was mocking and reminded me of a playground bully. This bully was much more dangerous, though, and I knew it. He crossed his arms over his chest and tilted his head to the side, awaiting my response. Gee, shove it, Herbie. Why can't you just leave me alone? We're grown men. We should both be able to act like it. I retorted hoping my tone was venomous enough to prove I didn't want to be bothered. Oh, I'll leave you alone for now. I have things to do here. Consider this a warning, though. If you return to the afterworld, you can be sure I'll be waiting for you. You're not the only one with friends here, either, you know. The sick grin on his face widened into a triumphant manner. Oh, good for you. I think friends might be a loose term here, though, don't you think? I mean, do you even know the meaning of the word? The question flew from my mouth before I had time to think about what I was saying. Immediately, I regretted it and knew it only added fuel to his fire. His grin dropped and a rage flared in his eyes. 
He lifted a hand to my face and opened his clenched fingers, palm to the sky. Before I could see what he held, question it or react, he blew the contents into my eyes and I dropped to my knees. My vision blurred and the ground under me instantly felt like it was wobbling. I leaned forward to brace myself with my hands on the ground, but felt my face collide with the pavement instead. My eyes burned, and I held them shut tight for a few seconds, before trying to blink and open them. I was on my side, moaning in pain and feeling the world shifting around me like an ocean. I had never been on the open sea, but I suddenly believed I knew what it felt like to be seasick. The sliver of vision I had showed all of the colours of the world around me swirling and melting in unnatural ways. I heard Herbert's laughter as he walked away leaving me there to wait out this unheard-of ghostly acid trip. I would have to remember to ask Pauline about what could cause this, and what the hell that powder stuff was that he had gotten hold of. When I returned to Pauline's room, a good hour and a half later, I was surprised to see a young woman standing there. She looked to be in her early thirties. I immediately assumed, from the long dark hair flowing down her back and her sharp green eyes, that she had to be related to my friend. What shocked me even more was when Pauline smiled at me and the woman turned in my direction and glared at me. I knew from the fire in her eyes that she could see me. She could see me. A light bulb smarked in my head and I realized that, of course, Pauline had to have been related to someone else with the gift. All thoughts of the encounter with Herbert completely left my mind at the sight of my sweet friend in the hospital bed. Xander, dear, this is my granddaughter, Jade. Pauline introduced us. I wondered if her bright green eyes had always been that vibrant, and if that's how she got her name. I began to extend my hand to shake hers, but stopped midway when she raised an eyebrow at me. I remembered that I wouldn't be able to make that or any other type of physical contact. You didn't say he was dim, Jade said to her grandmother. Pauline let out a pain giggle that was cut short. After a moment, and a breath as deep as she could manage, she said, Oh, now, now, Jade, behave. He hasn't spent much time back here in our world since he died. Xander, come closer. I need to tell you something before it's too late. Too late? Are you... I was cut off by the feisty granddaughter. Going to die? Yes. She's dying, all thanks to you. Her tone was harsh and shot through my haunted heart like a sharpened dagger. I opened my mouth to speak, but the bedridden woman beat me to it. Jade! She reprimanded, as only a relative could. I will have none of that, do you hear me? I am old already, and we knew it was bound to happen. It was only a matter of time. I'd rather go out from something exciting than a boring old afternoon in my chair anyway. I was helping an old friend, and you're going to help him too. Do I make myself clear, young lady? Jade's expression reminded me of a little girl who had just gotten caught with mud on her best clothes an hour before a formal event. She nodded without a word and took a back seat next to her grandmother's bed. I'm sorry, Yaya, she finally said, after taking a soft, 
wrinkled hand into her own too. Pauline reached over with her free hand and patted the girls lovingly with a smile and then turned back to me and motioned me closer. Jade didn't even glance in my direction as I moved to stand beside the bed, opposite the young woman. Now, Xander. Her voice was soft, and I got the impression that she had lost much of her strength when chiding her granddaughter. I heard whispers, and came across some unsettling and confusing information. I can't be sure if it's correct or not, so you, along with Jade, will have to find out. All I can say is that there's something off about Herbert, and you need to go to the cemetery. I'm not sure why, but from my understanding, you need to go to Annie's grave. I wasn't sure what she meant by unsettling and confusing information, but I didn't want to force her to talk and expend any more energy than she had to, so I simply nodded. Although curious, I would uncover whatever truth there was on my own now. She had said Jade would be assisting me, but I wasn't sure I could hold this woman to it once her grandmother had passed away. I wasn't counting on it. Another day and a half passed, with little talking between any of the three of us. Doctors and nurses came in and checked on Pauline, adjusted levels of medications in her IV, and gave us, well, Jade, sad looks. We knew that she'd be leaving us at any moment. It still didn't help me to prepare for the moment when a tan blonde man in a black suit appeared in the room. By his gaunt and skeletal appearance, I knew he was a reaper. Jade couldn't see him, but he noticed me staring at him and approached to stand beside me. I have to take her, you know. His voice was more solemn than Frank's. I nodded in understanding. Thought shoved its way to the front of my mind, through the sad and guilt-laden muck. Hey, do you know Frank? I turned to face the reaper. Aye, he said with a curt nod. Is there any way you could tell him that I need to see him here? The Reaper regarded me carefully, studying my face with furrowed brows. Finally, he nodded and accepted the task. Without another word, he reached towards the bed and wrapped his bony fingers around Pauline's fragile hand. I watched as a shimmering, transparent form of a younger, her, rose from her body, hand in hand with the Reaper. She winked at me before they both faded into nothing. The machines that were hooked up to her began the constant tone of a lost heart rhythm. Jade looked at the machines, then at her grandmother's face, and then to me. Her eyes spoke the question she couldn't move her mouth to utter. I nodded gravely. Because Paulie never had many friends, and Jade was her only relation still alive, the granddaughter chose to forego any type of ceremony or memorial. She followed her grandmother's wishes and had her cremated. The majority of the ashes were encased in a beautiful black and gold urn, with a tiny portion placed inside a small hollow pendant that Jade wore around her neck. It was a small sphere, about the size of a marble, colored in black and gold that matched the urn. To my surprise, the day following the cremation... Jade came to me at Pauline's house. I'd been hanging around, not sure of exactly what to do. Frank hadn't come yet, and I wasn't entirely sure he would be able to make it. 
I didn't know if Reapers could just pop in whenever and wherever they wanted to or not. Jade informed me that she had tracked down the location of Annie's burial and that we should head out the following morning. When I asked her why she was helping me, she set her jaw and told me that she had promised her grandmother and she wasn't going to back down from that promise, no matter what. Annie and Herbert had lived on the outskirts of a large city in another state. The trip there was less than thrilling. Most of the drive was silent, and Jade still blaming me for her only remaining relative's death. I apologized to her a few times, and tried to strike up conversations, but they were usually met with brick walls. Occasionally, I would catch a glimpse of the jade that didn't hate me, but it never lasted very long. In all the time we spent on the road together, I felt like I didn't learn much about her, other than her mother was Pauline's daughter, and she had no idea who her grandfather was. If Pauline had ever known which of her many suitors it had been, she kept that information all to herself. From my observations, I determined that Jade was a peculiar woman. She was much like Pauline in her gift and certain mannerisms, but there was an oddness to her that I couldn't quite place. It wasn't so much the things that she said, but a feeling I got from her, like there was something deep that wasn't typical, but didn't breach the surface enough to reveal itself. Whenever I asked her personal questions, I would be met with a stern eyebrow raise and silence. I think the longest conversation we had was about how beavers build dams and whether or not they would actually enjoy their work. Once in the city, we decided to go immediately to the cemetery. Annie had been buried in a place called Memorial Garden Cemetery. It wasn't so easy to find. I think we took three wrong turns and got lost enough to have to stop for directions at least twice. Maybe it's a cliché, but I didn't want to stop for directions, of course. I didn't really have a choice, though, seeing as though I can't be seen or heard by most of the living. It kind of gave Jade a leg up on me that I knew she was thoroughly enjoying. After wandering around for over an hour, we finally spotted the gates that stood at the entrance of Memorial Garden Cemetery. Should we go to the office over there to see where her grave is? Jade asked me, slowly rolling the car forward as she pointed to a small building not far off. My eyes started scanning the grounds as soon as we passed through the gated entryway. Something caught my eye as she spoke to me that proved to me we wouldn't need to talk to anyone in the office. <sighs> no. I pointed to a tree in the distance. Her grave is there. She looked at me with a confused expression. How can you be so sure? Look at the tree. I answered as flatly as I could trying to contain the emotions beginning to bubble to the surface. Who is that? She noticed the large figure leaning against the tree I'd pointed out. I answered, my blood beginning to boil in a mix of hate and fear. Herbert. Jade parked the car on the road behind a dark sedan, near to the tree that shaded the phantom. He didn't make a move towards us, only let his gaze linger a moment as the car came to a stop, before he turned back to look in the direction of what I assumed was the gravesite. I followed his line of sight and saw two figures standing over a headstone. One was a man who looked to be in his mid-fifties or so. The other was an elderly man, 
barely visible from his position next to the first man. As we got out of the car and began approaching the area, I glanced at Herbert every few seconds, worried he would suddenly lunge towards me. He only watched the two men intently. I hurriedly looked from headstone to headstone, searching for Annie's name. Jade trailed slowly behind me, taking each step slowly and methodically. It wasn't long before I was standing behind the living men and realized that the grave they were visiting was the one we were looking for. A motion to Jade, and she immediately understood. She began closing in on the grave when the men turned to leave. Seeing her, the younger of the two regarded her for a second, and then spoke to her. Good afternoon, he spoke softly and politely. Good afternoon, sirs. She addressed them both, then spared no moment for idle chat. Ah, did you know Annie? The younger man looked taken aback for a moment when he answered. Uh, I'm her son. Did you know her? Ah, of course. My name is Jade and my grandmother went to grade school with her. They lost contact after high school, but Yaya heard of her passing years ago. She always spoke of Annie in a loving way, and seeing as I was in the area, I thought I'd just stop by and pay my respects to her childhood friend. She just passed away, and I know she wished she could have done this herself, even though they hadn't spoken in decades. Oh, the tale Jade wove calmed the nerves that had begun buzzing when the man said he was her kin. I was impressed by the smoothness and quick thinking Jade had seemed to inherit from her grandmother. The older man, a hunched gentleman attached to an oxygen tank, smiled. How kind of you. I'm sure she would have loved to know she still crossed the mind of an old friend. Wherever she is, I don't doubt that she appreciates it. Oh, goodness, my manners. He extended a shaking hand. It was more wrinkled than Pauline's had been, and dotted with a few dark spots. Uh, my name is Herbert, Annie's husband. When I looked over, I saw the wraith steadily glaring at me. I couldn't help but think to myself, if looks could kill. Quickly, I then mentally corrected myself. No, if looks could physically torture me for eternity. Jade did an excellent job of hiding her bewilderment, and I was glad that these two men, Annie's son and still living husband, couldn't see me. My mouth remained agape for a good while as I looked between the ghost and the elderly man. He looked to be barely able to stand, hunched over and breathing shallowly, with ragged breaths from the portable tank. Forgive me, sir. I thought my grandmother had said you passed away as well, Jade offered in a sugary tone. Oh, no, no. Not quite yet. I'm almost there, though. This will undoubtedly be my final visit, but I assure you that I haven't left this world quite yet. He responded with a sad smile. His son cleared his throat and interjected. Dad, we need to get you back home right now. They'll be serving dinner soon. His father simply nodded, and the younger gentleman added to Jade. Ma'am, I apologize. This has taken a lot out of him, and he needs to rest. Oh, of course. 
It was lovely meeting you. Jade wished them well and then moved to stand directly in front of the headstone that read Annie's name, out of their way. I joined her in staring down at the engraved stone slab. In my confusion and sudden missing of Annie, I'd forgotten for a brief moment about the figure next to the tree. That is, until I saw movement and looked up. From the opposite side of the headstone, the man I thought was Herbert walked steadily until he was behind the stone. He gripped it tight with both hands, leaning over it slightly to bore into me with his eyes. There was a burning wrath emanating vibrantly through them as they bore into me. Who are you? Jade queried. The man didn't answer, but began to smirk and gave a short, low chuckle. That was Herbert. So, who the hell are you? I demanded. The ghost widened his grin and said in a deep tone, <laughs> She's mine now. With that, his grip tightened enough that I thought the stone might crack under the pressure. He stood up confidently and strode away. The inflection of his voice worried me more now that I didn't know who he was. Who was this stranger with an obvious obsession with my wife? Why did she think it was her second husband? What the fuck was going on? An hour later, Jade and I were sitting in a hotel room. She sipped on a glass of whiskey while I stared absentmindedly around the room. Confused, curious, and afraid. I barely noticed when she stood up and placed the glass on the small table and retreated to the bathroom. Can the dead change their appearance? The young woman asked as she turned the light off and stepped out of the bathroom. I shook my head and shrugged. I don't think so. As far as I know, the only change that happens is when you die. You take on the form of whatever age you were the happiest. But it's still only you not someone else. Hmm, she mused thoughtfully. I feel like Yaya would have a better idea of how to handle this. I could tell she missed the elderly woman deeply. I miss Pauline too. Even though I hadn't been her friend when we were younger, I had become quite close to her in recent weeks. I suddenly felt like the walls were closing in on me. I couldn't handle it and excused myself to take a walk. I wandered the streets aimlessly for a while, lost in thoughts of Pauline and Annie. No matter how much Pauline told me not to blame myself, I couldn't help it. I was mourning my friend, and I knew that if it weren't for me, she wouldn't have died when she did. I also couldn't help but wonder about Annie. It wasn't that I couldn't return, but I was sure that if I left the living world now, she could be in more danger with me around especially now that I didn't know who it was that was demanding her to be his, and I couldn't guarantee he wouldn't hurt her. I had no idea what this man was fully capable of. All I knew was that he was absolutely insane and obsessed with my Annie. I found myself back at the hotel, and as I made my way down the hallway to our room, my thoughts were, thankfully, interrupted by a familiar voice. I looked up from my gaze, fixed at the ground, and couldn't contain the smile that was immediately plastered on my face. <laughs> Frank! I hastened my pace to reach him. 
He was leaning against the wall next to the door to the room Jade was in. He gave me a half-smile and waved. The door opened beside him, and I saw Jade's head poke out and look down the hallway towards me. Oh, there you are, she began, but then froze when she noticed the tall, thin man standing beside her. Uh, hi. Frank looked down at her, his expression suddenly full of shock and wonder. The sight was almost comical, if not for the circumstances. Here was Frank, reaper extraordinaire, staring down with his mouth agape at the petite, dark-haired spitfire that was Jade. Well, staring down at her head, since that was the only thing that reached past the doorframe. I reached the two, locked in their awkward staring contest, and broke the silence. Ah, Jade, this is Frank. Frank, this is Jade. She's my friend's granddaughter. She's been helping me since my friend Pauline passed away. I gestured between the two of them as introductions were said. Frank cleared his throat. Colette? He asked the young woman. Jade raised her eyebrow and stood up straight. No, Jade. Like Xander just said, were you not listening? He introduced us less than five seconds ago, Frank. The spell was broken for her, and her natural saucy tone returned. Frank shook his head as if to clear the daze he was in. He quickly composed himself and reached out a bony hand towards her. <laughs> right. Sorry. Nice to meet you. Frank gave his common sheepish smile as she took his hand and shook it. You just look much like someone I knew a long time ago. I looked between the two and saw Jade slowly nod with an almost quizzical look on her face. Her eyes moved to meet mine, and she gestured with her head for us to go inside. I followed her through the door and had to physically yank Frank inside. It seemed the spell he was under hadn't quite broken completely yet. I wondered briefly who this Colette was. He'd never mentioned her before, or any other woman for that matter. Once inside... Jade poured some more whiskey into the glass she'd left on the table and held the bottle towards Frank. Would you like some? I don't even know if you can drink or not. Are you like Xander here? Oh, no. Not only am I corporeal, I can indeed partake in luxuries of this world, he answered with a nod. I would love a glass. Thank you. Jade retrieved the second glass from the table and flipped it over before pouring a rather large amount of whiskey into it. She gestured towards a chair, and he seated himself and took a sip of the drink, before beginning. Okay, Xander. So, you know I'm more of an employee than a powerful being, right? Yes. I nodded and responded. Well, he continued, there's nothing I can do about Herbert. I can't punish him or lock him away or anything. My superiors can, however, and I went to speak with them. And I prompted him to keep going. He took another, this time longer, drink from the glass. And they were willing to either put him on another plane, similar to the waiting room, or force him to be reborn sooner than he's supposed to. Obviously, they don't wish to do this, but... There's also the fear of him being forgotten, or becoming someone more in the alternate plane. <laughs> That's fantastic, though. 
We can be rid of him and I can go home safely. When can they do it? I asked excitedly. Frank shook his head and stared at the glass in his hand. Well, there's a catch. They're willing to do this if he gets back into the afterworld. They aren't going to send anyone to fetch him on this side. I felt my heart dip slightly for a second, but then realized that was easy. (laughs) Simple enough. I'm sure he'll follow me if I go back there. Not necessarily. Frank shook his head again. A soul has to be prepared to move on to the next life, remember? I fired my brows at him, and he rolled his eyes. Oh, geez, and do you not recall me explaining that to you? Maybe. I shrugged slowly with a childish expression that assured him I didn't remember that conversation. Frank sighed deeply and sipped the whiskey before setting the glass on the table next to him. He leaned forward with his elbows on his knees and his fingertips pressed together. Okay, the afterworld isn't the end all. It's a space created for souls waiting to move into their next life. The soul has to be ready, though, and there's a sort of order to it. If a soul isn't prepared by the time they're set to come back into another life, they can't be reborn. A soul has to have a sort of peace in order to be ready. That's why the afterworld is so laid back and vast. It's meant to help people find that peaceful feeling by the time their number is called. But what if they're not ready? Wouldn't it be possible for someone to continually not be ready and put it off in order to stay in the afterworld? Jade interjected. Uh, not really, he answered her. If someone is to the point where they're enjoying the afterworld enough to stay, then they've found that sort of contentment. And it can be determined in other ways than the specific person saying they're ready or not. Hmm. I thought we just stayed there. I spoke in a slightly downtrodden tone. Frank looked at me with a flat expression. Really, Xander? You think the billions and trillions of people just pile into a plane of existence for those who've died? And that's it? Don't you think it would be more crowded than it is now if that were the case? I shrugged. (laughs) I guess I never thought about it. Of course not. Frank exasperated and rubbed the bridge of his nose, obviously frustrated with my lack of knowledge. This wasn't the first time he'd had to explain something to me more than once, simply because I hadn't listened to him. Frank, what happens if the person isn't ready? Is there any way they can be forced to be reborn? Jade's voice broke through the tension. Yeah, they can be forced to, he nodded to her. But that brings complications and can end up causing problems on the other side of the living. Remember Hitler? Ed Gein? Charles Manson? All souls that weren't ready to be reborn, but were anyways. Not all of them turn out to be psychopaths or genocidal leaders, but there's always that risk. So, it would be safer for this guy, not actually Herbert, by the way, to go to the alternate plane? I asked, taking the moment to mention the mystery Jade and I had uncovered. Not wait, what? What do you mean he's not actually Herbert? Frank looked to me with confusion. It would mean that the real Herbert, the one Annie married, is still alive at 
At least for now. We met him and he looks like he could drop at any moment. Jade explained to him before I could respond. But, but Annie said it was Herbert. That's what she told me. Frank stammered. Yep, that's what I thought too. Until today, I said. Who is he then? We need to know his identity in order to do anything. He looked to me and then to Jade. She shrugged. Your guess is as good as ours. We don't know. He approached us earlier but refused to tell us who he was. He only said that Annie was his now and walked away laughing like a creep. That sounds a little too ominous. I'll see what I can find out. You two try to find out what you can over here. We have to find out who this mystery man is. Frank stood to leave. He seemed very concerned with the information we had just shared with him. Wait, Frank, one more thing. I called to him as he turned to the door. He turned around and I asked him, What is the powder that can mess up ghosts? He gave me a confused look. Powder? Yeah, I nodded. A few days ago, I encountered the mystery man, and he blew this powder into my face. It made me hurt, and I felt like I was on a really horrible acid trip. Recognition sparked in his visage. Oh, that sounds like bone dust. Bone dust? Jade asked incredulously. Yeah, it's made from the grinding of bones, usually a large animal's. There are certain spices and ingredients that are added to it, but it's mostly the byproduct of the bones. Nasty stuff that messes up anyone from the other side. It can't harm humans more than being irritating, but for spirits, it can be fairly dangerous, Frank explained to the both of us. Ugh, real nice, I said sarcastically. Frank nodded to Jade and then waved goodbye to me. Try to be careful, Xander. And don't let her end up like you. He gestured to the young woman seated on the bed as he walked out of the door. I glanced at Jade and thought I saw her blush a little. An hour and a half later, we were sitting quietly watching some old detective movie on the hotel TV. Jade had picked up some tacos for herself, and between bites we reviewed what little information we had about the entire situation. I think we should go back. She said after swallowing a bite. Back to? I asked her, turning my gaze from the television to her face. The cemetery. I just have this feeling we should go back. She shoved the final bit of taco into her mouth. I nodded without questioning it. I'd learned to trust Pauline's feelings like this, and I was sure I could trust Jade's too. All right, we'll go in the morning. The following day found us parking in the same spot and walking to the headstone of my beloved. It was an odd sensation to approach the headstone of someone who was still very, well, alive in death to me. Looking around, I saw a couple of people at various other markets, mourning their lost loved ones, and I felt like I was horribly out of place here. A dead man, out of place in a cemetery sounds fairly comical, I'm sure, but I wasn't mourning anyone here. In fact, right now, I was just missing the woman I knew was waiting for me. Seeing the grim look on Jade's face, though, I began to think of Pauline. 
How long would she have lived if not for me? How many more days would she have been up and smiling and sharing time with her granddaughter? My thoughts were, thankfully, interrupted by Jade announcing that there was something on the stone. I stepped to stand next to her as she lifted a small envelope off the top of the small monument. She opened it and retrieved a folded piece of paper from inside. I read it over her shoulder, silently. Jade, I hope you find this. I said my son to leave it under the premise that it was a final letter to my late wife. But really, I was hoping that you would return and discover it. I know you saw him. I could tell by the way you looked around and glanced at the tree. You could see him standing there as clearly as I could. I didn't want to say anything in fear of upsetting my son. But I believe I can see him because I am soon to die. He is the only dead that I can see, however. And that brings me to my request. I ask you to please visit me at the hometown senior community. I have questions. Thank you, Herbert. Without wasting any time, we obliged the request and soon were walking into the lobby of the retirement home. Jade checked in as a visitor and we were led to Herbert's personal room by a bored-looking nurse. She knocked on the open door and Herbert looked from the window to see Jade standing there beside the nurse. Come in, come in, he happily greeted her, not knowing that I was there. The nurse left, and he bid Jade to close the door and take a seat. Uh, your note said that you have questions. Well, I have some questions as well. I loved how Jade was no frills and always got to the point, just like Pauline had been. I'll do my best to answer them. But first, I must know how you knew Maurice. Herbert shifted his body shakily into a straighter position in his own chair. I could see his hands trembling and, for the first time, I felt bad for the man my wife had married. I could see his hands trembling and, for the first time, I felt bad for the man my wife had married. Up until this point... I had only indifference bordering on jealousy for him, until I had been punched in the face, at which time I immediately harbored strict resentment and anger for this man, or at least who I thought this man was. Seeing him, the real him, barely alive in this weak and frail state, made my heart sink a little. Maurice? I'm afraid I don't know him, she answered apologetically. The wrinkles around his eyes moved as the old man frowned. Then, how is it you could see him? Well, you see, Herbert, Jade began in a calm voice. My grandmother had a gift. Some people call it being a psychic or medium. Some would even call her a witch. The simple fact is, though, she had a connection to the other side that most people do not possess. She always had an ability to reach out, or even just receive information from those who had died, but not let go, and still linger here among us, the living. When I was just a little girl, I discovered that I too had this gift. Hmm, I see. If I'd heard that a year ago, I wouldn't have believed you, but recent events have opened my mind. Tell me, did your grandmother truly know Annie? Herbert asked seeming very intrigued by her admission. 
She shook her head softly and glanced up to look at me where I stood by the window. She then spoke to him. I have a friend who knows her. It's a little complicated, but my friend is not like you or I. He passed on some time ago and has since come into contact with... What did you say his name was? Maurice? Yes, Maurice. His voice faltered for a split second, as if saying the name was difficult for him. My friend encountered Maurice after both had left this world. The common thread between your friend and mine that caused this seems to have been your late wife. Jade worked to keep it as simple as possible. I wasn't sure if this was out of respect for me, or understanding that people have a difficult time accepting and understanding things of this nature. He wasn't my friend. Maurice was my brother, Herbert replied in a soft voice. His tone seemed to hold a hint of shame. Jade shot me a look that told me we were sharing the same thoughts. Would you be willing to tell me more about him? She asked as I took note of the slightly confused look on Herbert's face. He gazed in my direction, trying to see what she had looked at. When he looked back to her, he answered with a question of his own. Why do you want to know about Maurice? His expression hardened, and I got the impression that his brother was a sore subject for him, a secret that he had kept for a long time. Oh, it's a complicated and fantastic tale you might not believe. Her voice went quiet, and she looked at me once more, this time with a visage that I understood completely. She wanted to know if it was okay with me for her to explain my story to this man. I nodded solemnly to her in response. Jade leaned forward and took Herbert's hand in hers, a gesture that I'm sure she got from Pauline. Herbert, this is going to be difficult to believe, but I'm hoping that because you have seen your brother, you might be a little more open-minded than most. She paused for a moment, giving him a chance to say something. When he didn't, she let go of his hand and sat up straight in her chair before continuing. I'm not sure that type of person your brother was when he was alive, but he has done some things since dying. And as you've been able to glimpse, there is another world outside of this one where we live and breathe. Herbert nodded and she continued gingerly choosing her words to weave the tale of my current predicament. When she explained that I was here, she motioned to where I stood, and I saw Herbert once again glance towards me without seeing me. It was frustrating, almost infuriating that I couldn't be seen. I clenched my jaw as she continued. Throughout the tale, he nodded, and when she'd finished, he let out a ragged cough, and reached for his glass of water. He took a few short, slow sips, before setting it down and looking at her with undeterminable expression. Finally, he spoke. <clears throat> Maurice was... He was a troubled person. He had been since we were younger. Not only was he my brother, but he was my twin. If ever there was an idea of a set of twins containing one good and one bad, yeah, that was us. I loved him, though. He was difficult, and heaven knows he put our parents through so much. 
But when it came to me, he was tolerable. Dare I say it, but at times he was even nice. I'm not sure why it was this way, but I suspect it had to do with the fact that I was his mirror. Our entire lives, we excelled in different things. I was more quiet than Maurice, and he was stronger than I. We both played sports, but when he shined in anything relating to physical activity, I was average. When it came to studies and puzzles and speaking, however, I was the MVP. We both shared a love of crime and mystery since a young age. I was the one who desperately tried to figure everything out while he just wanted to take down the bad guy and make him pay. It's no wonder that eventually we made a good team. At this, he took a moment to refill the glass of water with the pitcher that sat next to it. He offered a second glass to Jade and she obliged, taking it from him and indulging her body in the cold refreshment. When Herbert had finished half of the glass, he set it back down on the table and cleared his throat. Maurice had anger issues, but he could show restraint if his mind was focused on a specific task. Usually this task had to be dealing with something violent or demanding physical exertion. I didn't share his enthusiasm for blood and gore, and found the entire idea distasteful. But he was my brother, and I couldn't ever bring myself to prevent him from his outrageous tendencies. I was, however, able to help point him in a direction where it could be used productively. In our early twenties, he began working for the government. I wasn't allowed to know what exactly he was doing, or where he was most of the time. But whatever work they had him do seemed to satiate his bloodlust somehow. When he began to become unruly and handlers were no longer able to control him or even deal with him, issues started to arise. By the time he was paired with his fourth handler, his temper was out of control and he ended up arguing with the man and put him in the hospital. Upon his request, the agency brought me on as a liaison to Maurice. It became quickly known that I was the only one who could probably handle my brother and I worked as his handler while being trained. It was unusual for someone to just come in and begin a task such as this before training was completed, but they felt they had no other choice. Shortly after I'd gotten into the groove of how everything worked, and after coming to terms with the nature of my brother's work, I met Annie. She was incredible, but in pain. I would see her often at a coffee shop, and before I even knew her, it broke my heart to see her staring so forlornly at the bridge that was under construction. It seemed like she always had tears in her eyes, but at the same time, she seemed so strong-willed and tough. Eventually, I struck up a conversation, and that was that. I learned of Alexander, and I understood that her pain ran deep. I was patient with her, and, most importantly, I was protective of her from day one. Maurice detected a change in me, and I finally admitted that I'd met someone. He demanded to meet her, but I was stubborn in not allowing that to happen. I didn't want someone so beautiful and so tortured to be subjected to my brutish brother. It was the first time I'd ever felt that way. I, I knew she was special. When I explained this to Maurice, he seethed for a few days, but he relented. She never met him once. Well, not that she knew. 
I discovered after the fact that one evening when I was stuck at the office finishing paperwork, he had met her for dinner, pretending to be me. I was sure to never let something like this happen again. He would regularly become infuriated, but never turned violent towards me like he would have if it had been someone else in the situation. After a while, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. I planned the wedding to specifically take place where Maurice wouldn't be able to make it, due to her mission. I advised my parents to not even mention him, and they obliged. Understanding. It might sound insane, but I spent the rest of her life sheltering her from my brother without my knowledge. I thought he had given up on wanting to be introduced to her, but I found a chilling discovery once he died. Herbert shifted in his seat, his face contorting to a countenance that told of physical discomfort and emotional pain. He took another sip of water from his glass. Maurice never married, never really even dated. He wasn't bad with the ladies and regularly had short-term girlfriends, but it never lasted more than maybe two months. He was okay with this, too. Because of this, he lived alone, and there was no one left by myself to clean out his condo. I enlisted the help of my son and his children, and one day we arrived at the spotless home. Maurice had always been very particular about keeping his place clean, so I wasn't surprised to see how sparse it was. I was, however, completely shocked to see the second bedroom. Kept it as a sort of office, but it was apparent that he didn't really do much work in there. At least, I thought it was apparent until I opened the closet. It was a shrine to my wife, to Annie. There were dozens of notebooks, all with descriptions of her outfits, meal choices, her expressions, and declarations of love. For Maurice, the declarations were anything but sweet. They were demanding, and they made me wonder if he'd ever thought of removing the obstacle, me, and taking my place as her husband. It became clear that he had been stalking her as well. Hundreds, possibly thousands of photos were placed around, some pinned to the closet walls, some filling various photo albums. I couldn't believe that my own brother had been doing this. What frightened me the most were the accounts of people that had given her a hard time disappearing. It wasn't even as if these people were specifically harmful to her. One I remember was a man who stole a parking spot that she'd been waiting for, and then proceeded to flip her off and smirk. Another was a waiter who got her order wrong and been sarcastic when she asked it to be returned. Each account of someone like this started with a short explanation of the situation, followed by a photo of the person. Information such as their address, schedule, route to work, and then a newspaper clipping or a printout of the person's disappearance. Finally, for each one, Maurice wrote what appeared to be in the format of an incident report, in which he detailed what he had done to um, take care of these individuals. Herbert shook his head sorrowfully. Oh, there were so many. I think in his twisted mind, Maurice considered himself to be protecting her, but overall he was just dangerously obsessed 
Gee, dangerous isn't even a strong enough word. He stared at his hands in his lap, as Jade reached out and took one of them in hers again. Herbert, I'm so sorry to hear that. I hate to seem insensitive, but how can we stop him now? He's demanding to be with Annie, and he's pretending to be you. Oh, I don't really know. I'm afraid that now we are separated by death, he won't listen to me. I can't even guarantee that once I die, even though I know it will be soon, that he'll listen to me once again. Herbert shook his head again. His hands trembled and she tried to soothe him a bit by patting the hand she held gently. He stalked your wife for the entire relationship and killed people. Why would he listen to you at all? He's obviously fucking mental. I grumbled. Jade shot me a look with eyes like daggers. I shrugged at her as if to say, What? I'm right, aren't I? We concluded our visit and left Herbert alone in his room. After he'd told us what he knew, he'd become quiet. I could tell it was like reopening a dangerous wound that could be ignored for a while, but ultimately refused to heal. The ride back to the hotel was silent. Jade and I both in deep thought. I couldn't be certain what was going on in her mind, but in mine, I was struggling to understand how someone could keep a brother like that a secret for so long, and from his own family at that. As we walked down the hallway to our room, Jade spoke up. How do you suppose we can get this Maurice person to accept his punishment or fate, or what you have once he follows you back to the other side? And how the hell did he get away with all those murders without anyone being suspicious? I'm not really sure. Hell, I'm not entirely sure of anything right now. Not when it comes to that psychotic stalker. I paused and leaned against the wall next to the door, while she fished the keycard out of her purse. The door clicked, indicating it was unlocked. Jade turned the handle and pushed the door open, allowing me to walk in the open door. We both knew I didn't really need a door anymore to enter the room, or any other room for that matter, but I appreciated her polite gesture. Walking into the room, I began again. I don't think it would be a good idea for him to be reborn just yet. I also don't know how one gets to that other plane like... I was cut off when a strange noise sounded in the room. It reminded me of an electronic powering up sound, not dissimilar to an old desktop computer whirring to life with fans and the faint hum it emits. I had only a short moment to look back at Jade and register the confusion on her face as her eyes shot to my feet. I looked down and saw a soft lime green glow pulsing from a strange metallic plate that I had unknowingly stepped on. In an instant, like with the flip of a light switch, my entire world went black. My body tingled in a manner that was almost painful. It was like every atom of my being was vibrating and buzzing worse than when your foot falls asleep. My head felt fuzzy and my vision returned slowly, starting out as just dim light all around me. Soon, shapes started to form around me and became clearer. I shut my eyes and held them tightly closed. I hadn't had a hangover in decades, but that's the one thing I could think of to relate this feeling to. Alexander... A male voice spoke from somewhere across the room I was in. 
I opened my eyes and saw an average-looking man in a white doctor's coat holding a clipboard. He was sideways. I blinked and realized I was lying on a bed. I sat up on the bed and glanced around. Aside from the bed, there was a chair, a roll-top desk, and a short table spread across the room. The man stood in front of a door, and I noticed that the door was almost completely blended in with the light grey walls around it. On the wall adjacent to the door, and across from the wall that the desk was pushed up against, there was a large mirror that spanned from one end of the wall to the other. It was set about a foot and a half from the ceiling, and ended at what, I guess, to be mid-thigh height. I'm sure you feel disoriented, but that will pass with a little time, the man at the door said. My eyes fell on him once more, and I watched him scribble something down quickly on the paper attached to the clipboard. What did you do with Jade? I queried, in as demanding a tone as I could muster in my state. Hmm. Oh, Miss Leventis. We did nothing with her other than administer a simple sedative. She's back in her hotel room in Houston. His tone was very plain, cold and matter-of-fact. I immediately assumed from the way he spoke and his attire that he was some sort of scientist. Why am I here? I asked the man, my mind racing to try to fill in the blanks. What would a scientist want with a ghost? And better yet, how the hell is it he could see me? Was he also a psychic or medium or something? I am not at liberty to answer that, Mr. Grant, he said, more focused on whatever his clipboard contained. How do you know my name? Who would be at liberty to answer that? That goddamn stutter. So much for appearing tough, I thought, sarcastically to myself, and rolled my eyes in annoyance. I gritted my teeth and looked to the ceiling, hoping this science guy wouldn't say anything about my stammering. That would be me, Alexander. I heard a familiar voice come from the doorway, as an electronic whoosh sound indicated the opening of the sliding door. My eyes shot back, to see an elderly man walking in to stand next to the scientist. The man had wrinkled skin and tired eyes, but stood taller than I'd seen him last, hinting at his full height that was impossible to tell before. Herbert? I asked incredulously, with a silent thanks to my mouth for not making me sound like a stammering idiot this time. Thin fingers curled over as bony knuckles rapped the door a second time. Why wasn't anyone answering the door? Frank waited another moment, listening for movement inside the room. When he heard none, he stepped through the door just as a spectre would. It was a perk of being a reaper. The light in the hotel room was on, and there was a strange metallic smell in the air. Something felt wrong. Frank looked around as he stepped forward, trying to see where his friend and acquaintance were. His eyes fell upon the curled form of a young woman on the bed, seeming to be asleep. Her breathing was quick and shallow, but Frank felt in his gut that this wasn't just a nap. Xander was nowhere to be seen, which could easily be explained by a decision to take a walk. But still, something inside Frank just knew that wasn't the case. 
he approached the woman on the bed. She was still fully clothed in jeans and a long-sleeved shirt, lying on top of the blanket, her head not even on the pillow. All of these details only further confirming that something was off. Her dark hair fell over her face, and Frank couldn't help but remember his dear Colette from so very long ago. Jade was the spitting image of his old love. Perhaps, in a previous life, she had actually been his Colette. He shook his head to rid his mind of those sad memories, and gently touched her shoulder before shaking her slightly. Jade? Jade, wake up, he called to her in a soft voice. Xander had never witnessed this side of Frank, as he kept it well hidden. He couldn't help himself with Jade. Lucky, Xander had gotten his love back, but Frank had not. After his own passing, he never found Colette again, living or dead. He began training to become a reaper soon after he'd arrived in the afterworld and likely wasn't around when she had finally passed and then moved on to be reborn once again. Jade made a groggy noise as her eyes fluttered, and she blinked. Ah! She let out a small, surprised scream. After clasping her hand over her mouth and propping herself up on an elbow, she took a deep breath and looked at the reaper. She made a move to push herself to a sitting position and asked, Frank? Yes, it's me, he answered, helping her sit up and scoop back on the bed in order to place her back against the headboard. She rubbed her eyes and tried focusing on the room. She watched Frank seat himself on the bed in front of her, and the memory of returning to the hotel room hit her like a pillow full of bricks. Xander, he... She fought her cloudy mind to try and make sense of the jumbled details she was recalling. Frank reached out and placed a hand on either side of her shoulders. Calm down. Just take a deep breath. He tried to soothe her. No. He's gone. I should have sensed something was wrong. I usually have a pretty good intuition. He stepped on this metal plate or something, and then there was a flash. I remember something poking into my neck from behind. Jade shook her head before burying her face in her hands. Tears welled up in her eyes and she tried to fight back the small sobs. She felt like she had failed her grandmother. Frank removed his right hand from her shoulder and lifted her chin to look him in the eyes. Her hands dropped into her lap. It's okay, Jane. We'll find out what happened. Right now, you need to relax. She nodded at him and fixed her eyes on her hands in her lap. Frank shifted his weight on the bed and pulled something from a hidden pocket inside his blazer. He handed the small, thin item to Jade. She took it between her fingers and saw it was a photo of something she didn't expect. She looked at him with a confused expression. It's a baby hippo. The baby hippo will make you feel better. The old man smirked and let out an amused snort through his nose. <laughs> sort of, I guess, but not really right now. There was no struggle in his speech, no wavering in his tone, and no oxygen tank being dragged next to him. My stomach sank and I felt my throat start to close up. Morris, but how? Again, with the damned stutter. 
y- y- yes, Alexander. <laughs> it's M- M- Maurice, he teased me. My eyes narrowed in anger. Herbert's not a medium, and I doubt he did a ritual. How the hell are you in him, and why? I demanded. Thankfully, the rage I felt building trumped the confusion and fear that brought on the stuttered words. You're right. Herbie's not a medium. And no, he's too old to handle the ritual. The only other way would have to be a connection, right? Maybe the type of connection that's built over, oh, I don't know, an entire life between two brothers. Twins, nonetheless. You know what they say about twins, right? that they share some special bond not found in most other siblings. Morris, in his Herbert costume, walked absent-mindedly around the room. He was surely entertaining himself more than explaining anything to me. I didn't answer, and he took it upon himself to continue. Now, let me address the question you posed to Dr. Marks. They know your name because of me, obviously, and you're here because, well, because I suggested you be brought in as a subject. If you remember, I worked in information attainment. I had other duties as well, though. Aside from attaining information, I was regularly used to attain items or, well, even people. So you tortured people every step of the way? I asked sarcastically. He stopped pacing and glared at me for a moment. Clearing his throat, he continued his mindless stroll around the room. As I was saying, Alexander, my expertise is not only limited to what some call torture. I became rather proficient in procuring items and things that, well, aren't human. Things that shouldn't be in our world. Like you, for example. And you, I pointed at him. He shrugged and gave a small nod. Yes, and me. But my state of being has now become an even larger asset to the company. If I was good at finding and bringing in supernatural things before, you can only imagine how better I am at it now. Others, such as yourself, are here for the experiments and studies. Have you ever considered what it would be like to move about this world, undying, but be able to touch and feel things? To somehow channel the energy used to cross between the worlds and hold someone like you here? Or what about using some of that energy to help the sick or injured? His eyebrows raised as he turned to face me, clasping his hands behind his back. (laughs) You're trying to tell me that you're concerned with people you don't even know. I find that hard to believe. His expression was stern for a moment, but then it broke into a small smirk and he shrugged once more. (laughs) You're correct, I must admit. Just patriot. Being able to move about the world invisible. Just imagine how helpful that could be in gathering intel. Preparing for battle. Even going into battle. (sighs) There's the Morris I know. I rolled my eyes and muttered. Look here, you little shit. He snarled. You're stuck here. Our scientists have ways of being able to not only see you, but keep you contained. You think I tortured you before? Try having every cell in your body cut into. 
If you think you want to talk back, that's fine. We have rooms set aside for pieces of shit like you, where I can practice my technique like I did on you before. And although we don't really have any use for a human right now, I'm sure that little Leventis girl would make a fine addition to our collection here. After all, she has a gift that could help us, and the mediums we have on staff would be happy to take a little break. <laughs> it might just be time for a fresh face around here. I pressed my lips together tight and refused to speak another word. He was threatening Jade, and I couldn't be certain of how much he already knew about her and her family history. I was already the reason her grandmother, the sweet Pauline, was gone. I couldn't handle being the reason that she was brought to wherever this place was. Maurice stood up as straight as he could. By inhabiting Herbert's body, he gave it a sort of strength that I recognized from my own possession of Pauline. Still, he couldn't counteract all the years Herbert had spent with his spine shifting and bending his body. Even without being able to stand up tall and fill out his hulking minotaur-like body, I sensed a power in him that could easily break me. He turned on his heels and left the room with the scientist in tow. I was now left alone with my thoughts in this strange cell. Once the initial shock began to wear off, boredom set in. Do you realize how boring it is to be in a room with nothing but a bed, desk, chair and table? Well, I found myself wandering over to the desk trying to open the roll top on it. The desk itself looked cheaply made, a knockoff of some old classic, I'm sure. Nothing would open, though. Every single one of the six drawers and the roller was locked tight and wouldn't budge. I was too frustrated with the lack of entertainment that I didn't even realize that I was able to touch the desk until later. By then, I couldn't claim to be surprised at all. This entire room or maybe even this entire building, somehow made me corporeal. As much as you might think this would have excited me, I found myself wishing I was still a regular ghost, so I could just walk through the walls and get the hell out of this place. After trying the desk, I walked over to the wall-length mirror. I tried the finger test, and, just as I expected, there was no gap. <laughs> Two-way mirror, of course, I thought to myself. I'd assumed that already. Otherwise, why would there be such a huge mirror in the room? But it was still a letdown to know that I was correct. My head was still pounding. I felt like I could be sick at any moment. It dawned on me that my previous wondering whether or not ghosts could vomit was likely being answered by the fact that I hadn't vomited at all up to this point. Surely, with the torture, the bone dust, and now whatever it is they did to get me here, I would have retched all over the boring room. I sat back on the bed and looked at the bare walls for at least the tenth time. Couldn't they have at least sprung for a painting or something? I mused mentally. I wouldn't be surprised if the lack of colour was just another way to torture and annoy me on Maurice's part. After spending a couple of hours more in a state of painful boredom, the man from before returned to the room. He didn't have a clipboard this time, but instead carried a file which he placed on the table and opened. We haven't formally met. I'm Dr. Marks, and I'll be the one <laughs> monitoring your health. 
he said in a dry tone, as he clicked his pen open and prepared to write. My health? I asked in response. I'm dead. I think that's pretty much the opposite of good health, and I don't see that changing any time soon, unless you all have figured out some magic way to bring back people to life without their bodies. Mr. Grant, you'll find that in here, you're not quite dead. You're not exactly alive in the technical sense either, but your mind can break even if you don't have a typical human body. The doctor looked at me with a boredom that almost matched my own. I didn't say anything this time, and, after waiting a few seconds, he cleared his throat and continued. I'm sure you have many questions, including what it is we actually do here. Now, I won't lie. It isn't always pleasant, but sometimes pain is necessary in life to make, well, important advances. Again, I pointed out to him. I'm not alive, so that statement sounds stupid and irrelevant. Hmm. I never said it was for your life, Mr. Grant. He closed the file and began digging into his pockets. Turning up empty the first time, he reached into another pocket and produced a key. I heard the pen click as he held the key out to me. It seems we aren't going to get very far with you today. Here, this is for the desk. Usually we leave the key in one of the locks, or just leave it unlocked. But for some reason... Maurice wanted to forego that detail for some time. I took the key and thanked him. He left without another word, and I stood there, staring at the small piece of metal in my hand. At least I could now check out the secret of the desk. Maybe there would be something in there to help pass the time until I could figure out just how to get the hell out of this place. In the roll-top section of the desk, I found a notebook, Three pens, three pencils, some typical desk supplies one might expect, and a map of the facility with clear markings of the areas I was allowed to be in. By studying the outline of the building, I saw it was huge and made up of several wings. I hoped that this map would inevitably aid me in my escape. Well, a month went by, and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't reach out to anyone from in here, and worse, I couldn't find a path to the outside. I was always met with a dead end of either wall or elevator that required a code and ID card. I tried calling out to Jade mentally, and sometimes even aloud, but no matter how much I screamed or begged, I couldn't reach her, or Frank, or anyone at all. I can't say for sure whether or not that was because of where I was, or if it just wasn't possible. Either way, it was a disappointment. I felt myself begin to lose hope and break within the first week as I realized what these people were trying to accomplish and how. Aside from studying the supernatural aspect of what I am, they were trying to find a way to break down the cells of ghosts and gather DNA from other types of beings in order to infuse what we are with a normal human. I'm not sure if they were going to go for the typical super-soldier end result, or trying to harness what makes us different in order to turn around and sell it to the rich. Well, we were treated like a natural resource that just needed a way of being harvested. We were less than animals, let alone the people that many of us used to be. 
I say us and we because I quickly discovered that there were many other ghosts and supernatural creatures locked away in this building too. The process of breaking down the pieces of what I made of is painful, and Maurice took great pleasure in it, I could tell. One particularly excruciating way they attempted to harvest the energy was by strapping me to a table and inserting me into a machine that resembled an MRI machine. Instead of loud noises and imaging, though, it produced a wave of energy into the subject. I have no idea what kind of energy either. All I know is it felt like everything in me was being ripped apart violently before being pushed back together, only to be ripped apart again. It was almost as if my very spectral being was being forced into an ebb and flow that was torture every single second. Usually, the experiments would come every other day, and between them would be a special alone time, well, special with Maurice. He was only in Herbert's body for a week and a half after my arrival. After that, he remained as his ghostly self. I assumed that Herbert had finally passed away. I only hoped that it wasn't painful for him. Sometimes I even found myself hoping he found Annie and could make her happy in death as he had in life. I couldn't be there for her, so she might as well be taken care of by someone who seemed to be a good person. And no matter what, at least it wasn't Maurice. Knowing he was here with me and not in the afterworld with her, was the only solace I was able to hold on to. After the first month, I gave up trying to reach out to anyone, or even put up a fight at all with Maurice and the scientists. Like I said, I was breaking. Three more weeks flew by in a blur of pain, torture, experiments, repetitive medical questions, boredom, and thoughts that this would be my afterlife forever. And then, something changed today. During certain times, those of us who can manage it are allowed to roam some of the halls and visit the garden they have in the centre of the building. The garden itself is enclosed in glass, separating us from the actual fresh air, but it's still the closest thing to freedom we are allowed. As soon as I saw it, I knew that it would be my sanctuary. Although there were plenty of ghosts like me, we all kept to ourselves. Maybe it was a constant pain, or just the fear of what might happen, or what we might learn by talking to anyone else. It was obvious by just seeing some of them that it is, in fact, possible to lose your mind after death. I remember wondering if this is how poltergeists were created. This is why it took me by surprise when an older gentleman walked up to where I sat on a bench deep in the garden. He took a seat next to me and lit a cigarette. I'd never seen him before, and I eyed him curiously for a moment before turning my head back to look at the stars high above me. Xander, I heard the man say when he was halfway finished with his cigarette. I lowered my head slightly and glanced at him. He was staring straight ahead, taking a drag, making the tip of the cigarette glow brighter. He barely seemed to notice I was there, and came to the conclusion in a few short seconds that I was finally beginning to lose my marbles, hearing people talk to me when they hadn't actually said anything. The man still had his lighter in his hand, 
and shifted to stick it back in his pocket. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw him deposit the lighter and retrieve something else. He set a small black velvet pouch on the bench between us. When I looked down to see what he'd put there, I heard him speak again. Hold one in each palm when you go to sleep. And with that, he stood and began to walk away, not sparing me a single look. I cautiously picked up the bag and opened it to reveal two stones. I turned the pouch upside down and let them fall into my palm. One was white and clear, in the shape of a long rectangle, but still relatively small. The second one was black and polished, so that it easily caught the light on any edge of it. I recognized this one to be obsidian, but I wasn't quite sure what the other one was. Dropping both stones back into the tiny bag carefully, I considered why this random person would want me to hold them when I went to sleep. Was it a weird trick orchestrated by Maurice? Could it have something to do with someone else? I returned to my room, thoughts swelling around my head, as I considered if I would do what the stranger told me or not. I walked through the open doorway and placed the pouch under my pillow, before sitting on the bed and waiting, when we were allowed to roam around in what the people who kept us here referred to as free time. Our doors were opened and remained open until that time was open. I made the mistake of falling asleep with the door open once, and was jarred awake by a female ghost standing over me, whispering nonsense. When she noticed my eyes were open, she grabbed my thigh with her nails, digging into the fabric and my flesh. Her gibberish grew louder, but it was another language and I couldn't understand a single word. She seemed to ask me a question, and when I shook my head trying to indicate that I didn't know what she was saying, she grabbed a hold of my throat with both hands and climbed on top of me, straddling me and pinning me down with such force that I don't think even Maurice could have been turned on. She began lowering her head to my neck, while removing her left from my throat and using it to shove my head to the side. Dr. Marks and another employee rushed in and called to her, telling her it was time to go back to her room. They grabbed her and began pulling her off me before she let go. My throat was yanked up before my head dropped back to the pillow, and she was carted off. The only explanation I got was a quick statement from Dr. Marks, saying that she wasn't actually a vampire. <laughs> the three left, and I heard her growling and gnashing her teeth at them as they made their way down the hall. After sitting on my bed, staring absent-mindedly around the room and feeling more like a zombie than a ghost, the door slid shut, and I knew that it was safe to lie down. First, I stood and crossed the room to turn off the lights. Now, as I flipped the switch to off, I decided that nothing could be worse than what I'd already dealt with. So, why not take the chance? With the room dark, I returned to the bed and lied down, retrieving the small pouch as discreetly as I could as I adjusted the blanket on top of me and faced the wall. I gripped the obsidian in my right hand and the other stone in my left before closing my eyes. It didn't take long for me to leave the room in my mind. It wasn't Exactly like falling asleep, as I normally would. It felt like the moment I began to slip into sleep, something dark surrounded me, 
and pulled me into the deep end of the pool before I could even consider the fact that I couldn't swim. I had the sensation of falling a few minutes and was left finally standing in emptiness. It wasn't like standing in a dark room. It was as if I was standing on and in nothingness. There was nothing around me, above me, below me. It was just a void. I turned around over and over, yelling into the void, trying to understand where I was and why. My voice began to feel hoarse from the yelling, and I sat down, feeling defeated and confused. This must be a new form of sleep torture from Maurice. He couldn't let me rest in peace. Why did I ever think he'd just let me sleep in peace? I dropped my torso onto the ground, lying face up in the dark. Well, I'm ashamed to admit that it took me too long to realize that what I was looking at wasn't a star. A pulsing light above me grew closer, starting as nothing more than a pinprick. And the closer it came to me, the larger it got. And once it appeared to be as big as a fingertip, it finally clicked that it couldn't be a star, as it was the only source of light in the entire space. It continued to grow, and I was frozen. Not out of fear, but out of fascination. I was utterly hypnotized by this growing star, wanting to figure out what exactly it was. It began to change colors, shifting from light blue to dark green, and then light green, before going back to light blue. It was spellbinding. I sat up, my head still tilted up to this star. As it kept growing larger, I saw that it was in the shape of a hand. As soon as I thought I could reach it, I stood and extended my hand directly over my head, trying to place my palm on the palm of the hand made of light. A tingling sensation poured over me, and the light grew brighter, pulsing quicker and flipping through the colours rapidly until the light was all I could see, blinding me from the void. I shut my eyes tight and shielded my face with my other arm. You look like an idiot, a female voice said. I lowered my arm and opened my eyes, blinking in order to adjust to the new scene I was now surrounded with. It was still a void of sorts, but it seemed like the dark air rippled with unseen silk. Prismatic beams of light danced around faintly as I focused on the speaker. Jade! I ran to her and went to throw my arms around her, but fell through her as if she was a ghost. Her image faded for a second and then solidified again. She shook her head at me and rolled her eyes when she turned to face me. I was now on the opposite side of her, staring at her with my brows furrowed. I'm not actually here, Xander, she began to explain. This is more like a phone call of sorts. I don't see any phones, I responded, sounding more like myself than I had in over a month. <laughs> Very funny. Okay, moving on. We don't have a lot of time, as you'll be waking up soon, I'm sure. Waking up? I just fell asleep less than an hour ago, I answered her. No, you actually spent several hours getting here. It just didn't feel like it. For those who aren't trained in using dreams for conversations like this, time seems to pass quickly, but you actually waste a lot of time getting to the goal. <laughs> Don't worry, 
It took me a while to get the hang of it too. She offered, making me feel a little better. I nodded slowly. Uh, okay, so how exactly is this working? We don't have time for me to explain it right now. She shook her head before stepping towards me. Xander, we know where you are. It took a while to figure out, a lot of stakeouts and waiting, but Frank and I are working on getting you out. The only problem is it could still take a while, and there's something that we don't think can wait much longer. Her voice was worried and more panicked than I'd ever even thought was possible from her. What's wrong? I asked quickly, picking up on her concern. She looked at her feet for a moment before letting out a loud sigh and looking back at me. Oh, it's Annie. Maurice won't leave her alone, and it's getting dangerous for her. He kidnapped her once, but she escaped. Somehow, he's intelligent when it comes to you, but he's as stupid as a box of rocks when it comes to her. She was able to easily trick him into lowering his guard and letting her slip away. I'm sure he won't let it happen again, even if he can get to her. No, he's been with me here most of the time, torturing me, experimenting on me. I stammered, feeling my heart sink. He's not been with you 24-7. From what we can tell, he spends 12 to 14 hours where you are, and the rest of the time going after Annie. The point is, though, there is an out for her. Her sentence trailed off quietly. Well, what is it? I demanded as gently as possible. Jeez, how could I have been so stupid to think she was completely safe while I was locked away here? Of course he wasn't spending all his time torturing me. So the time between sessions was open. Why would he stay at the facility when he knew where she was and that I couldn't interfere? <sighs> she can move on. The short sentence hit me like an arrow to the heart. I had just gotten her back, then lost her again, and now she was in trouble and I was being told her only option was to start her new life and forget all about me. There has to be another way, I pleaded with Jade. She shook her head again. We've tried everything we can think of. She came to the living world and we were trying to protect her, but let's just say that I don't look this good in real life. My mental projection is in much better shape than I really am. And Frank is being pressured to either give up being a reaper or get back to work. The higher beings are getting more than tired of dealing with this mess. They wanted to stop and they've offered to move Annie on. I searched the glimmering void with my eyes as heartache crept in and my mind went blank. Something in me knew that this was the only option for this to truly end. I had to lose her again in order to save her. Xander? Jay's voice was quiet. If Frank isn't a reaper, I can't see him anymore. I looked up at her and instantly understood that something happened between them in my absence. Tears filled her eyes, and I could tell that even the thought of that was painful for her. I couldn't bear the thought of being the source of more pain, especially for Jade, especially after I had brought her grandmother's death. I nodded silently to her, accepting the information. She refuses to do it, though, at least until she knows you're safe, she said. So, what can I do? I asked and saw the tears begin to fall down her cheeks. Try to tell her she needs to do it. Tell her that you'll be okay, 
that you trust we will get you out. She was almost whispering now. How? She paused before answering me. Through me. Through here. I looked at her solemnly as I gathered my thoughts for a moment. Okay, I'm ready. I'm sure she knew I was lying, but I had to do this for Annie's sake. For Frank's sake. For Jade's sake. For everyone. Jade lowered her head and closed her eyes. I watched as her body shuddered and shimmered like the air around us. When she opened her eyes and looked back at me, I knew it wasn't her. Xander! She squealed and made a move to throw her arms around my neck. I took a step back, the most painful step of my entire life. I could feel my own tears beginning to form in my eyes, and my vision threatened to blow. We can't touch here. I'm so sorry, baby. My heart sank with each word. Jade's image shimmered, and I saw Annie's form for a split second. Seeing her face was the final push I needed for the tears to break the surface. The expression that spread from Annie's face to Jade's face spoke of confusion and longing. Annie, you have to move on. I forced the words out. They tasted like stomach acid in my mouth. Bitter and abrasive and sickening. She shook her head. Not without you. I tried to sound as stern as I could as my fists clenched at my sides. You have to. It's the only way for you to be safe. I don't know what's been going on out there lately, but I trust Jade and Frank have tried everything, just like Jade said. She hung her head in silence. I love you, Annie. I always have, I always will. And that means that no matter what, I want and need you to be safe, okay? I took a step towards her, standing just before her. The torture of not being able to wrap my arms around my beautiful Annie was worse than anything Maurice had done to me. Every piece of me ached and cried out for her. Okay, she said quietly, with a small nod, but she still refused to raise her head to look at me. We stood there, unable to truly comfort each other while the seconds ticked by slowly. Hey, look at me, I said to her sweetly, making a gesture as if I was going to raise her chin with my hand. She looked up and into my eyes. Another arrow shot me through the heart, as I saw Annie's eyes and not Jade's. I saw such pain in those eyes, and knew exactly how she felt. Her entire form shimmered again, and she stayed, appearing as my Annie. I'll be fine, okay? Jade said that they're figuring out a way to get me out, and it won't be much longer. Besides, it's not so bad. I'm sure it's a lot better than what you think. I lied again, this time to Annie instead of Jade, and I hoped she believed me, at least enough to do what we both knew she needed to do. She nodded without a word, and I reached my hand to hover next to her cheek. I didn't need to say anything. She understood the gesture and closed her eyes, tilting her head ever so slightly, remembering the touch. I forced an anguished smile. I love, love, I began to say, but was cut off by a blinding light. 
Reflexively, I shut my eyes tight against the glaring illumination. And when I opened them, I was in the dark once again. Alone. Instead of the void, though, I was back in my room. My arm extended up above me, as it had been when I tried to will Annie to feel my touch. Only with a closed fist now. I released my fingers, and the stone fell from my grip. I lowered my arm and stared at the ceiling letting a tear fall freely. I knew I'd just see my sweet, beautiful Annie for the very last time. What the hell are you smiling about? Maurice demanded. He was standing on the opposite side of a control panel in a corner of the room. I shrugged, knowing that refusing to tell him what I knew would drive him crazier than anything else I could say. His eyes narrowed as he glared at me for a few seconds before returning to his task. One of the facility scientists was strapping me into the dentist office-like chair in the center of the room. From the moment I saw my door open, and watched Maurice stomp into the room. I couldn't help but begin grinning. As heartbroken as I was, I still knew that he couldn't get to Annie now. I took solace in the idea that she would have either crossed over by now, or would be very soon. She was out of his reach for good. The scientist's name was Roger Carpenter, not that it really mattered to me. I'd seen him often, I knew him to be one of the regular aides who usually accompanied Maurice with these experiments. Roger finished tightening the thick leather bands, and I was held in place with one over each wrist, forearm, ankle, and thigh. There was also a single larger one that crossed my chest, and held my shoulders firmly against the back of the chair, keeping me from being able to move almost at all. Once he was finished, I watched him join Maurice behind the protective barrier. I wasn't entirely sure how much it could actually protect them, seeing as it had an opening on the side that was big enough for even Maurice and his giant ego and shoulders to walk through. The rest of the room contained a single chair, the one I was seated and strapped into. On three sides of the chair, creating a sort of box with one face missing, were different panes that reached from floor to ceiling. On my left and right, the walls were some sort of metal, each smooth surface was broken towards the bottom by something that reminded me of a miniature Tesla coil. The wall behind me, however, was made of a thick mirror that distorted any image that it reflected. With the press of a button, I heard a noise come from above me, and I looked up to see another large mirror being lowered out of the ceiling. It stopped just inches above my head, and another mechanical noise began reverberating from the floor around me. Out of the floor rose yet a third mirror to enclose me completely. As it rose into place, I stared at my altered reflection and took a deep breath, attempting to prepare myself for what was to come next. This wasn't the first time I'd undergone this particular experiment, and after a few moments, I knew the coils would begin to charge with electric energy and release waves of lightning-like sparks that would bounce around slowly reaching from the coils to the mirrors and languidly bouncing off the glass until they reached me. 
It would then enter and spread throughout my body. This would happen with multiple sparks and, eventually, it would become impossible to tell just where I was being hit. Then I would begin to expand and appear fuzzy, as if I was becoming a dust cloud. From the fragments of conversation that I had overheard, I knew that the plan, with this method, was to continue with minor tweaks each time until they could successfully separate our body into particles entirely. Then, they would begin to work on how to contain the particles in a manner that was, as they said, workable. I can't begin to understand how exactly a ghost turned into dust could be workable in any way, but I also don't pretend to know much about science either. All I knew was that it was horrendously painful, and felt like a slow death that I was subjected to over and over and over for hours. As you can imagine, Maurice was fond of seeing how much suffering this caused me, and was always quick to offer me up to test on. When I mentioned the MRI-type machine before, and how excruciating it was, well, I had yet to undergo this particular hell. I can undoubtedly say that the coils and mirrors operation was the worst that I dealt with. It might not sound very painful, but you really can't even imagine how it feels to have yourself ripped apart over and over again while you're turned into nothing more than a cloud of dirt kicked up by a tyre. It typically lasted two to three hours, sometimes more if they thought they were making some sort of progress. As long as I was there, they didn't succeed in separating my entire body, though, or any other bodies that I know of. No matter how ash-like my arms and legs became, my head and chest refused to follow suit. Every painful spike of electricity was felt throughout my entire body, but it just wasn't enough to make those parts release their hold. While I waited for the torture to begin, I heard muffled voices from outside from my box, and then what sounded like the door open and close. I was curious, and a little confused about what was transpiring, but I had no choice other than to sit alone, staring at myself. I was so sick of my own reflection. After the machine still didn't turn on for several minutes, I began to debate with myself about whether I wanted to say something aloud or not. On the one hand, I wanted to know what was holding up the torture, as I'd rather it get going and get over with it as soon as possible. But on the other hand, I had no way of being able to know who would answer me, if anyone. I didn't feel mentally strong enough to really clash with Maurice at the moment, if he happened to still be in the room. Without a reliable way to tell how much time had passed... I'm not sure how long I sat there, going back and forth with the idea of calling out to see if anyone was on the other side of my enclosure. In the end, I debated long enough that the choice was made for me. I heard the door open and close once more, and then Maurice's suppressed, but still obvious, voice greets someone in a harsh tone. I couldn't hear who responded, if the person had at all. Within seconds... The machine began whirring to life, and I knew it was time to get this show on the road. After hours of unstoppable pain and separation of my molecules, 
The session was finally over, and Maurice dragged me back to my room. From that day on, the experiments picked up and began to take place every single day instead of every other day. I felt like I was in a constant haze of confusion, pain, and torture. Time moved by in a blur, and even now, I can't recall how many times I was in that chair, or anything that was said to me. I have murky flashes of Maurice yelling at me, physically assaulting me, and some of him laughing, presumably at my anguished expressions. I didn't notice a change from this routine, until I woke up the second day in a row and felt as if the smoke was finally beginning to dissipate from my head. Dr. Marks visited later that day and checked on what well, he called my health. While he was there, I asked about the experiments and tried to find out why the frequency had changed. Well, Mr. Grant, I'm not sure I can answer that because I don't really know. As far as I'm aware, Maurice insisted that he was close to a breakthrough and needed to reduce the time between each session. I've not been informed of any updated results, however, so I'm not sure how close he thought he was. As for your current situation, Maurice is away but will return tomorrow, and the testing will resume then, he said. His tone was one of disinterest and detachment. I nodded and muttered a thanks as he jotted something in the file he held. He then left without saying goodbye, but by that point... I was used to not being awarded the typical decency between humans as you would see in the outside world. Everything here, and everyone, was cold and distant, save Maurice, who was just demented and downright cruel. True to what Dr. Marks had told me, the following day Maurice tracked me down in the garden. It was unusual to be taken for anything during the slot of free time I was awarded, but this is Maurice we're talking about. He isn't exactly the type to care for the rules. If possible, he seemed even angrier than usual. His grip on my upper arm was tighter than necessary, and I wondered if he was going to crack my unnaturally corporeal arm just from the squeezing. Instead of the laboratory I'd become accustomed to, he led me into a new one. The setup was similar, with a control desk in one corner of the room and a chair that looked like a dentist's personal torture device. The differences were obvious, though. Instead of being in the centre of the room and facing the door, the chair I would be in faced the left wall and would put my back closer to the opposite wall. Halfway between the chair and the wall, ahead of it, was a large slab of what looked to be foggy glass, held in place by recessed slots in the floor and ceiling. I wasn't entirely sure what it was made of, but it was at least a foot or so thick. When Maurice began strapping me into the chair, I noticed that there wasn't anyone else with us. Curious bells began going off in my head, and I began looking around the room, craning my neck from one side to the other. Sit still, you stupid shitworm, Maurice said through gritted teeth as he shoved my shoulders into the back of the chair. I let my body be pushed into place and glared at him. So, did you piss enough people off that you have no more lackeys? I asked, letting the disdain drip from my words thick enough to drown an actual worm 
which was something I was sure I was not. Where is Annie? I know you had something to do with it, he demanded. His eyes narrowed, and he glared back for a second before focusing once again on the straps. He pulled the leather violently against my left wrist, and I felt my skin get pinched. (laughs) Fuck, dude. It's not like I can get out of them anyways. You don't have to cut off the circulation to my fingers. Who the hell pissed in your oatmeal this morning? I said, wiggling my fingers as best I could. You're dead. You don't need circulation. Where is Annie? He repeated his question. I don't know. You got me. Where is Annie? I lied. Don't get smart, asshole, was his response. I shrugged. I'm sorry that I don't get your riddle. Well, I think that would prove I'm the opposite of smart, eh? I knew that I was baiting him, but the very mention of my beloved's name brought my blood to a boil, and I couldn't pretend to care about anything else. Nothing he put me through at this point would matter. He finished tugging the straps as tight as he possibly could around my arm and locked eyes with me. Without moving his gaze, he put the last one into place, buckling the leather across my shoulders. In his eyes, I saw nothing but hatred and hell. He enjoyed hurting people, and I knew that he likely always had. I was sure that he had to have been that kid that made the neighborhood animals disappear, likely torturing them in the woods where no one knew he went. Had Herbert even known? Once he was finished, he retreated behind the control panel without another word. Won't even talk to me now. Maybe if you can't find Annie, it's because you should stop looking. She doesn't want you, and you know it. She never did. She married your brother, not you. Just forget about it already, I said. Instead of responding, he began to press keys and buttons while looking at the screen in front of him. Hmm, This was new. He'd always been a talker, and I found myself becoming worried, more with his silence and refusal to speak. As I watched him ignore me, I swear... I could almost see the smoldering flames of wrath emanating from his body. My concentration on the evil being in the corner was broken when the door opened and I saw a woman with light brown hair pulled into a tight bun enter the room. I didn't know her name, but seeing her brought flashes to my mind from the muddled section of my memory. I knew that I had to have caught glimpses of her during that time, probably as his newest assistant. Poor girl, I thought. She looked quiet and kept her head lowered, showing her lack of self-esteem in the presence of this monster. She said something to Maurice, and I only heard a murmur of sound, confirming that she was the quiet and shy type. He barely grunted in her direction as he fiddled with the controls. I heard mechanical noises come from the opposite side of the glass-like slab in front of me, and I squinted at it trying to see what was creating the sounds. I had difficulty seeing through the wall between myself and whatever it was, but I could tell that something was rising from the floor. As far as I was able to make out, 
It resembled a small black pillar and stopped when it appeared to be waist high. The noise faded out, like a motor powering down. Okay, what is that? I asked, unable to keep my confusion to myself. Well, directly in front of you is a giant plate of quartz. It was quite difficult to get in here and set up, so if it breaks, it's your fault. Beyond that, Alexander is a new device that should do some interesting things. You'll be the very first to test it out. You should feel honored. Maurice finally spoke. He didn't even try to conceal how excited he was, and it didn't escape me that he didn't tell me what was actually supposed to happen. From the childish, gleeful expression on his face, though, I imagined it was meant to be painful. And if it had the potential of being painful then, of course, he would have volunteered me to be the first ghostly human guinea pig. The next part happened so quickly that I didn't fully understand the actions until after the moment had passed, and I was able to protest the details I tried to retain. Maurice pushed something on the keyboard in front of him, and I heard a click from the opposite side of the quartz wall. It began to light up, barely noticeable at first, from an unseen source. Thinking on it now, I wonder if there had been some sort of bulbs or something above it in the ceiling. There was a flash of brighter light behind it from the pillar, and I saw a myriad of colours begin to dance in the glowing crystal, like lightning bolts. His assistant slammed a fist into the button that opened the door to the room. Both Maurice and I looked at her. My vision skewed due to the brightening crystal. Through the intensifying light, however, I saw another figure rush into the room. Maurice charged the new person, and the assistant ducked between them before whirling around and pulling something from her pocket. The one who had just entered the room grabbed Maurice and held him tight, while the mousy young woman shoved a needle into his neck and pushed the plunger, administering something that made him immediately go limp. He was dropped to the floor, and the assistant rushed to pull off my bounds. As she worked quickly to release me, the man that was helping her tapped a few buttons on the control panel, and I heard another click. With my vision still blurry from the light that continued to fill the room, I couldn't get a good look at who the man was, or even determine the details of the woman's face as she unbuckled the straps. Whatever was coursing through the crystal began to collect in one spot, level with the top of the pillar behind it. My gaze locked onto the changing wall, and, seeing my worried expression, the woman looked over her shoulder to see it as well. Make it stop! The assistant yelled at the man, who still stood at the controls. I'm trying. I don't think I can stop it until after it runs through its process, I heard him say in a frantic voice. For a split second, I thought the voice was familiar, but I didn't have time to think about it. I saw a quick flash before the energy that had culminated pushed out of the quartz and hit me in the chest. I blacked out immediately, and in the extended second it took for me to fully lose consciousness, I could have sworn I heard someone call Jade's name. I awoke to the sensation of moving. I was on my back, and my entire body was just gliding along. I'm even more dead than dead now, 
It really is possible for a ghost to die, I thought, before groaning audibly. My head was pounding and swimming. I felt like a fish that was forced to ride an intense roller coaster, only to be thrown back into a tank of water and left alone to recover. My head lifted up and fell back down on a hard surface, jarring me and making me open my eyes. It took me a few seconds to realize I was looking at the sky through a window on the side of a vehicle. Stay down and quiet back there, a voice came from somewhere past the top of my head. I tilted my neck back and saw a man in the driver's seat and a woman in the passenger seat. From what I could see of her now slightly disheveled bun, it was that assistant. I guess that the man driving must be whoever had helped her in the testing room. She glanced back over her shoulder at me for a second, then returned her gaze forward. I looked around as best I could, without sitting up, and was able to surmise that we were in some sort of SUV, with the back seats folded down. I was stretched out with my feet at the back door, and my head towards the front. As I was taking in my surroundings, I felt the vehicle slow, and then come to a complete stop. The man's window rolled down, and he greeted someone outside. How's the wife, George? asked our driver. She's at that point where she's ready to strangle me, I heard another male answer. Ah, that'll pass soon enough. Isn't she due next month? the driver said. Yes, sir, and it can come quick enough in her opinion. What about you? Any exciting plans for the weekend? the outsider answered. I was confused about what exactly was going on and who these people were aside from the fact that the ones in the car just broke me out of a supernatural prison. Yeah, the little lady here agreed to go camping with me. We're going up to the lake. Might even catch some fish for dinner if we're lucky, the driver answered. Lake? Camping? Was I really being spirited away just to go camping? Camping is for people looking for seclusion in the outdoors. What the hell are they planning to do to me? I screamed mentally. Well, you're in good hands, miss. I'll see you on Monday then. Drink a beer for me, would you? The man outside let out a small chuckle. (laughs) You got it. Good luck with the wife, George. Send her my best wishes. The driver bid the other man farewell. There was a tap on the roof from what I assume was George's hand. As we drove past, I was able to catch a glimpse of George through the window and saw that it was a man in a security uniform. We must have been leaving the facility. We moved slowly at first, and when my head was pushed up again, I held it there, anticipating the drop this time, as we went over what I realized was another speed bump. I heard the engine grumble louder as the accelerator was pressed, and our speed increased steadily. For fear of being snapped at, I remained quiet until someone decided to address me. It was, again, the woman in the front. After a few minutes of driving in silence, she shifted in her seat and turned to look at me. Okay, I think it's clear now. Sorry about that. We just don't know exactly where the point of you becoming incorporeal again is. She began. I could hardly grasp her words, though, as I was too focused on the removal of what I didn't realize before was just a wig. 
The light brown hair was pulled off and gave way to long, silky black hair. It was the first time I was really able to see the woman, and I instantly understood my mistake. She wasn't ever so quiet because she was shy. She didn't keep her head down out of low self-esteem or fear. I had been way off with assuming she was mousy at all. (laughs) Jade could never be anything less than strong, defiant, and outspoken. Jade, I said, with as much excitement as my pounding head would allow. She smiled sadly towards me, and gestured to the driver. Xander, this is Duncan Vaughan. I believe you're met briefly already. I looked at the man behind the wheel intently. He turned his head to nod at me once, then focused on the road. Seeing him now, I recognized his salt and pepper hair and profile. When he pulled a pack of cigarettes from his pocket and lit one in his mouth, I knew for sure who it was. You're the one that gave me those stones, I said as I sat up and moved to hang my legs off of the edge of the flattened seat. He nodded without taking his eyes off the road. Duncan is another medium. He's been employed by the Asherton Group for a while and wanted out. He agreed to help us as long as we help him get away from there as well, Jade explained. For the Asherton Group, there isn't really such a thing as quitting. You either work there until you die, or terminate it, or go through a rigorous retirement process, Duncan added after taking a puff off of his cancer stick. Why does that sound like the government? I asked. It's not. It's worse than the government. When they terminate you, they make sure either you can't talk or that no one will believe you. They take confidentiality seriously, Duncan stated. Still sounds like a spy organization, I said. Duncan snorted out a laugh, but it was Jade who spoke. I don't think the CIA or NSA or any other government agency experiments on ghosts but I wouldn't be surprised if they sent some over. Okay, then. Who exactly are they? I asked, looking from Jade to Duncan and then back to Jade. She turned to look me in the eye, and I saw something in them that made me pause. Uh, you're not Jade. Her head shook and she responded. Not exactly. Jade is here, don't worry, but this is Herbert. This was the only way to get you out. Jade isn't really healthy enough to do much, let alone a rescue mission. What do you mean she isn't healthy enough? I asked. Anger and concern began to swell in my gut. I'll explain later, when we get there, Herbert said through Jade's mouth. We drove in silence after that, despite all the questions that kept popping up in my head. Tall, corporate and business buildings gave way to a more industrial section of whatever city we were in. Then that gave way to open fields and developing subdivisions. We turned into one of those subdivisions, and I watched without interest as the houses passed the window. It felt like line after line of homes that almost looked identical. Some completed, and some still waiting to be finished. After a few more turned, we pulled into a driveway of one of those completed houses. Duncan pushed a button above his head, and the garage door opened for us. Once the car was inside, my two saviors exited. 
Duncan went to open the back door for me, but I opted to slide through it, glad to finally be able to ignore the confines of the living world. He shrugged with a smile, and I followed him to a door that led into the house. Jade, or rather Herbert, pushed a button to close the garage, and waited for it to completely close before following Duncan and me inside. We walked through a kitchen and into a living room that was nicely furnished. I wondered briefly if Duncan or someone else lived here, or if it was a model home of some sort. Wait here for just a minute, Duncan said, and gestured for me to take a seat on the couch. I obliged and went to sit down, while the other two walked down a hallway and quickly left my sight. Instead of a soft cushion, my butt fell through air. I caught myself and focused my energy so I wouldn't fall through the floor to a possible basement. Oh, God, I don't know if I'll ever get the hang of this ghost crap, I muttered under my breath to no one but myself. I stood back up and placed a hand on the cushion, testing my own resolve. When there was resistance, I mentally patted myself on the back and took the seat. While I waited, I looked around the room. From what I could see, it was a nice house, which wasn't too surprising, as it was in a still-being-completed neighborhood. I tried to get a sense of who lived here, but found no photos in frames, on tables, or hanging on any walls. If Duncan lived here, I assumed that either he didn't have a family, or that they didn't live with him. I suspected more that this was less of a lived-in home, and more for show. Maybe it's some sort of safe house or something, I thought to myself. I wasn't left alone for too long, and Duncan returned with Herbert in tow. It was the real Herbert this time, ghost body and all. I smiled internally when I saw that the ghost version of Herbert looked to be in his late teens, or very early twenties. As much as I didn't hate the real Herbert, I still felt a pang of jealousy that he was able to spend his life with Annie when that chance was stolen from me. With the age he appeared now, I knew it had to be before he met her. I considered all of this for a brief moment, then registered their expressions. They both shared similar looks of concern and weariness as they sat down. Duncan on a chair across from me, and Herbert on the opposite end of the couch that I was on. Where's Jade? I asked, once they'd both seated themselves. Duncan's expression twisted, and I felt my heart sink, even though I wasn't sure what was going on. I inferred that the way that they both looked, and from what they'd said previously, it wasn't good. Herbert cleared his throat and turned his body to face me easily. Alexander, Jade is, well, she isn't doing so well. Right now she's resting but it doesn't look good for her, he said in a soft voice. What do you mean? I asked. She's really sick, her body and her soul, Duncan answered. Maybe we should explain everything while we have the time. I'm sure that Maurice will track us here soon enough. Frank should be back this evening, and I don't know when Jade will be up again, Herbert said. He looked at Duncan as if asking his permission. Duncan nodded, and Herbert took a deep breath before looking back at me. Yes, please, tell me what's going on, I urged him. 
My ego didn't want me to sound too desperate. But I really was desperate at that point. I felt like so much had happened while I was in the facility, removed from both the living world and the dead one. Okay, first of all, Duncan here is a medium, like we told you, and has been employed with the Asherton Group for over a decade. As it turns out, I was also an employee of the group. I just didn't know it. I always thought that I'd work for a branch of government. Because of my position, it was easy to be kept in the dark about it. They went to long, long lengths to make me never have a reason to question who my employer actually was. Well, from what we've learned, I think it's likely that there are many more employees that are under the same impression. That's just one show of how powerful they are. The Asherton Group doesn't just pull the strings from behind the scenes. They create the strings and the world around them, Herbert said. For the science department, we sort of knew what we were signing up for, at least in terms of who our employer is. But they have other departments. You've come into contact with mainly the science department, along with some individuals of their internal security. Aside from that, I don't even know what they all do or what they're able to do. Duncan spoke. Did Maurice know? I asked Herbert. His lips pressed together, becoming thinner as he let out a deep breath through his nose, obviously perturbed. Yes, he actually helped keep me in the dark. It would seem that I really didn't know my brother at all, like I thought. Psychopaths can be really adept at blending in and pretending, I offered, trying to soothe him a bit. I couldn't imagine being portrayed by a family member in the ways that Herbert had been by his own twin brother. I always thought twins were supposed to be close and have some sort of special connection. But it seemed, in this case, Maurice didn't feel any of that, and only pretended to care about his brother in order to get what he wanted. Herbert nodded quietly while he stared at a spot on the floor. We sat in silence for a few minutes. I'm not sure about the other two, but I wasn't entirely sure what to say at this point. What do you tell someone who found out that much of their life had been a lie? And even worse, they didn't find that out until after they died. Death really can be enlightening, and it isn't always in a positive or existential way. Sorry, let's move on. Herbert began once more, clearing his throat again and straightening his back. The Asherton Group extends further than we can tell, and they have been working on supernatural beings for a very long time. There's so much information contained in the walls of their buildings all over the world. They possess objects of metaphysical and occult importance that can be very dangerous. One of these items is a long knife used to sever souls from bodies. It goes along with a legend of a king that lived in the time of ancient pharaohs, or perhaps even before the pharaohs. All accounts of his legacy and rule have been wiped from public history, but Asherton has apparently done quite a bit of research into this king, and his daughter, including procuring the knife. What exactly does this have to do with Jade? I asked. I'm getting to that, Herbert answered, and continued. From the little that we were able to learn, this king made a deal with a god to bring back the woman he loved who had died. But bringing the woman back, though, the god wanted a child. 
It would be born of the woman and raised by the king, for the offspring would be the gods. The deal was agreed upon, and a daughter was born, with only the king knowing who her father truly was. The demigod grew up in the king's care, along with her half-siblings, the king's true progeny. When her powers began to show, the king saw the opportunity and used her to go into battle. It's said that she was able to call the dead to battle and temporarily remove souls from bodies. At some point, the king used her to create a knife that could sever the link between the souls and their bodies for good. His, for lack of a better term, adopted daughter would remove the soul and then the knife would be used to slice the remaining connection, ensuring that the body would die or be left open for possession while the soul would eventually disappear. What do you mean, disappear? Like, move on to the afterworld? I asked. We don't know. All we know is, they were broken souls that couldn't cross into the realm of the dead that you know. The tale continues on, but the only part of importance for us is the knife. Yeah, as I mentioned, the Ashton group found it, Herbert said. I raised an eyebrow, unable to put the pieces together on my own yet. Both Duncan and Herbert avoided my gaze, and it left me with the sense that they were both struggling with the next bit of information. When neither said anything for a full minute, I spoke up. So, what does this mean for us? They shared a look, and both shifted in their seats. It means that Maurice was able to get his hands on it, and use it. Jade's voice came from the entrance of the hallway behind me. I looked up to see her leaning against the wall. Unlike when Herbert was possessing her earlier, she now appeared terribly haggard and worn down. It took me by surprise to see her in such horrible shape. Her skin was ashen, except where bruises shone through in hues of deep purple and blues. Duncan jumped up and rushed to her side. He wrapped an arm around her shoulders and gently guided her to the chair he'd been sitting on. She moved slowly and shook with each breath. No one said a word until she'd been helped into the seat of the chair. She pulled her knees up and curled into a ball, leaning against one of the armrests. Jade looked at me, and I saw how wrong her eyes looked. They were sunken in. Dark circles ringing the now dull green eyes that had once been so bright and vibrant. I was reminded of how brittle and fragile Pauline had looked before she passed away. Jade looked like a walking corpse. And when she softly smiled at me, my heart broke. Jade, what happened? I asked in a soft voice. Her smile faded slowly as she responded without answering my question. I'm sorry about Annie. Thanks. I trailed off, averting my gaze to the floor. The pain of everything hit me in waves, and I couldn't understand how everything could have gotten so out of control when I wasn't even a living person anymore. I felt tears welling up, and swallowed them hard, and then shook my head before taking a deep breath and looking back up at Jade. Will someone... Please just tell me what's going on. Jade nodded slowly, once, then looked at Herbert and Duncan. 
indicating that one of them should continue. It was Duncan that finally spoke. Jade is dying, he spit out. While trying to save Annie before she moved on to be reborn, Jade astral projected. Unknown to us, Maurice was waiting for a chance like that, and he used the moment to strike, cutting the tie between Jade's body and soul. Her body is decaying, and she's trying to fight it by possessing herself, essentially. Because of the violent nature of the deer and her soul being broken, it isn't working very well, and her body will continue to die around her until she is forced to leave it. What will happen to you? I asked Jade. We don't know, she said with a shivering shrug. We can't worry about that just yet, though. We still have work to do. Have they told you the plan? I shook my head in response while Duncan left the room. He returned with a blanket that he draped carefully over the frail Jade. I couldn't believe that Jade was dying, and again, it was my fault. I killed the only two left of an entire family. Oh, I chided myself internally. I felt more shame than I ever thought was possible. So many lives have been screwed up and broken because of me. Stop that, Jade said as firmly as she could. I looked up from the floor to her face and we locked eyes. In that instant, we had an understanding. She didn't want to die, but she was also determined to finish what she had started. Beating myself up wouldn't help anyone, especially not her. So, what's the plan? I asked. It's a little out there, and it might be a long shot, but we're going to use magic, Herbert said. Magic? I asked. I thought I'd heard it all, but realized that I was sorely mistaken. It was easy to believe in ghosts, because, well, I was one, and reapers made sense. Even mediums were easy for me to grasp. But magic? Really? Why didn't that even surprise me? Yes, magic, Jade said. We tracked down a witch who supposedly can perform something she refers to as soul magic. She's one of the only people in the world that can do it. What we're hoping she can do is lock a soul in an empty body, and then render it unable to move. The soul wouldn't be able to escape the body, and they would remain inanimate, sort of frozen in time, Duncan explained. Okay, so trapping Maurice's soul sounds like an interesting and potentially good plan, but where are we going to get an empty body to use? Are we going to go grave robbing? Because Jade is in no shape to dig, and I don't think Herbert and I can really operate a shovel. That would leave only you, I said to Duncan, while making a digging motion with my hands. Jade's smile widened, and a light glinted in her. In them, I saw a spark for a moment that made them look almost the same as when I'd first met her, so full of life and feisty determination. She answered me. <laughs> We're going to use my body, of course. The witch wasn't what I expected. For some reason... Upon the mention of soul magic, 
I immediately thought of a Creole woman with bone jewellery and a tattered dress, maybe even a top hat to go along with it. Basically, I imagined what anyone might picture when hearing the term witch-doctor. The woman who knocked on the door, however, was nothing remotely how I'd imagined. When she entered the house, I actually considered for a moment that there might be some horrible joke being played on me. There was no way this could truly be some witch who was more powerful and skillful than many others on the planet. What sort of impressive witch wears jeans and a t-shirt? Weren't they supposed to have dark hair, wear black dresses or some crazy costume, and be older? The girl looked like she could still be in high school and had blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail. I gaped at her as Duncan led her into the living room and offered her something to drink. She took a seat in the middle of the couch, across from Jade in the chair. Close your mouth, Sander, Jade commanded calmly. I immediately shut my mouth and looked at her in confusion. She didn't look at me, but greeted the woman instead. Avery, how are you? The young witch smiled warmly at her. <laughs> I'm good, Jade. How are you feeling today? Any better? Oh, sadly, no. I don't think there will be any feeling better for me anymore, Jade answered. The witch, Avery, frowned and looked at Jade with a morose expression. I'm sorry to hear that. I wish there was something I could do, but I just don't know anything that could help. I tried looking into it, but there's nothing solid to be found. Now, no, none of that. It'll all be over soon, so it's okay. Jade said, sounding more like Pauline than ever. Oh, is everyone here and ready? Avery asked her. I watched as she looked around the room and realized then that she couldn't see me standing next to Jade, and she seemed to also not see Herbert entering from the kitchen with Duncan. So, witches can't see the dead, I surmised to myself. Duncan handed her a can of Diet Coke with lime and nodded an answer. Everyone needs to be here right now. I expect Maurice will be here soon too, so we shouldn't waste too much time if that's all right, Jade said. We all knew that so far we had been lucky that Maurice hadn't tracked us down in the last couple of days. I agree. I'd like to try and get everything set up and begin the ritual before he interrupts. The farther we can get into it, the better. That way, hopefully, all we will need to do is close the lock on him and go from there, Avery said. What about Frank? Does he need to be here? I asked. No, Frank doesn't need to be here for the ritual itself, but he'll be joining us soon, I'm sure. Right now, he's still keeping track of Maurice, Jade told me. I nodded to her thinking about the relationship between her and Frank. I was curious, but I didn't pry. It didn't feel like the right place or time to ask about what happened in my absence, or details of how they came together to have such a relationship. I'd observed a few exchanges between them, but I hadn't been able to put together their story. Avery excused herself to the bathroom in order to prepare. I wasn't sure what that meant, but understood when she returned and had some freaky makeup on. Her face was painted bone white, and dark makeup created shadows around her eyes and cheeks. 
It made me think of a skull design Annie and I had seen at a Dia de los Muertos festival so many years ago. Ah, there's the creepy witch doctor vibe, I thought, as Duncan moved the coffee table to one of the sides of the room. Avery knelt down and began removing items from the sturdy case she'd wheeled in with her. I could imagine how awkward and heavy the large thing would have been to transport, if not for the wheels. At first, I saw typical items, such as candles, crystals, a cloth, and salt. When she pulled out a skull, though, I couldn't help but be surprised. Is that a human skull? I asked aloud with a gulp. Jade giggled softly and repeated my question for Avery. Xander wants to know if that's a human skull. Of course it's a human skull. It might even be yours, she answered nonchalantly. My eyes widened and Jade broke out into a fit of laughter that made her weak body shake furiously until she was able to stop and let her body relax. I heard her breaths come out as soft wheezes from her failing lungs. Once her body had calmed enough, Avery spoke once more, looking at the skull that she held in front of her face. Relax, Xander. It's from a body that was donated to science a very long time ago. I don't go around digging up dead people. I only summon them to do my bidding, the witch said. I waited a moment for a mischievous smile to cross her face again, indicating another joke, but none came. Thoughts rambled through my mind. She's serious about using dead people to do her bidding. What exactly did that entail? Were they slaves? Why would she need help from the dead? Is that even ethical? Duncan continued to busy himself, aiding Avery in setting up the living room for the ritual she would be performing. She moved some more furniture to give her the space she would need, and when it was to her satisfaction, she sat on the floor with her legs crossed. She closed her eyes and held both arms chest high in front of her, with her elbows bent and her palms facing the ceiling. Her lips moved, but I wasn't able to hear what she was whispering. She didn't stop until I saw a figure join us. I had no idea where he came from at first. He was simply not there one second, and then there, standing behind Avery the next. She opened her eyes, and he reached out a hand to her shoulder. Her head tilted upward, and she greeted him with a smile. Hey everyone, this is Chimali. He helps me with stuff like this, Avery said. He smiled down at her in return. I observed the short man with long, ebony hair that fell loosely an inch or so past his shoulders. The black suit that he wore looked like it fell oddly on his body showing off a build that was somehow stocky, yet strangely thin at the same time. Realization struck me, and I blurted out, He's a reaper! No one answered me, and when I looked around the room, I saw that Duncan and Herbert were intently watching Avery as she began pouring something thick and dark from a glass bottle into the clay bowl that sat in front of her. I wasn't sure... But given what I'd seen so far, and the nature of the spell she was working, I guessed that the liquid was blood, hopefully from an animal. Chimali knelt down, 
hand never leaving Avery's shoulder, and began speaking in a low voice. I tried to listen to the words that he was saying, but after straining my ears for a moment, and still not understanding a single word he uttered, I caught on that he was speaking another language. Even if I was able to determine any word or phrase, I would never have been able to actually know what he was saying. Next to me, Jade had her eyes closed, and I could tell that she was struggling to breathe normally due to how weak her body was. A few minutes passed, as Avery deliberately and carefully went through the motions of whatever the hell it was she had to do before she joined Jamali in the ancient chant. I felt awkward and didn't know what else to do other than to keep standing there beside Jade. She opened her eyes every few minutes and watched the ritual taking place for a few seconds before closing them again. I was startled when Frank appeared suddenly from the direction of the kitchen. I think I even jumped a little, but thankfully no one seemed to notice. Everyone was engrossed in the magic being worked. Frank strode to stand on the other side of Jade and reached down to touch her hair gently. Her eyes opened and she smiled up at him. As frenzied as her demeanor seemed, he took a second to lean down and kiss her forehead before standing up again and addressing us all. Maurice will be here in just a few minutes. Are we ready? he asked looking around at everyone. Herbert shrugged and motioned to Avery with his head, while Duncan gave a slight nod. Avery continued to focus on the spell where Chimali paused his chanting for a moment to look at Frank. The ancestors are being summoned and petitioned. If he is to be here now, we need time before we may strike. He spoke in a thick Mesoamerican voice. Frank nodded to him, with a sharp inhale. We'll do what we can. Telazokamati, Chimali replied, and glanced at Jade before giving Frank a look that I never thought I would witness in a million years. He was sympathetic for another reaper over the imminent death of a human. He turned back to rejoin Avery in the monotone recitation. Jade reached up and took Frank's hand. He held her softly, but seemed to struggle with looking at her. She either didn't notice, or wasn't bothered by this, and I wondered for a brief second what kind of relationship these two had. Were they mushy and lovey, or did they automatically slip into the type of sturdy intimacy that you might see between two people who have been married for years? Five more minutes passed by, and the chanting never ceased. My nerves, on the other hand, steadily grew more furious as the seconds ticked past. I was antsy, and on the verge of being bored, which only aided in making me feel that much more anxious. The more time that passed without Maurice, the closer I knew we were to him crashing our little party. Jade cleared her throat and pushed herself to stand up. I began to reach out to aid her but stopped when I remembered that it wouldn't be of any use. I was as useful to her as a scene in a movie with subtitles that says something along the lines of laughing in French. Frank was the one who helped her to her feet, and she told us in a quiet voice that she needed to go to the bathroom. When Frank offered to help her, 
She sarcastically whispered that she could still do that at least on her own. A wink and smile topped off her comments and gave it that special jade quality. When she disappeared down the hallway, Frank turned to me and spoke in a low voice. I'm sorry about Annie. I met his gaze and nodded, instantly feeling lonely and missing her. I'd done, at least I thought, a good job so far of keeping myself distracted enough that she wasn't the prominent thing on my mind most of the time. The mention of her name brought the knife back to my heart, though. I couldn't force myself to say anything, so I attempted to give him a smile instead. I'm sure it looked more pathetic than a puppy with a cone around its head. The strange chanting concluded, and Avery was still, not looking anywhere other than in front of her. The way her eyes were focused, I wasn't sure if she was actually seeing the ritualistic spread that was laid out before her or not. I didn't have to wonder very long if she was in some sort of trance or not, as Chimaldi addressed us all. She convenes with the sacred ones now. We must keep her from being disturbed. If the link is broken, they are not likely to grant audience for this a second time, he told us. We all nodded our understanding and stood quietly for another few seconds before the silence was broken by Jade re-entering the room. She suddenly had a strength to her that she had not possessed a minute ago. We all immediately knew what that meant. Our plan had worked so far, and Jade had successfully spilled the beans on the spell that Avery was performing, one to get my body back. We assumed that, if faced with this information, so long as he thought it wasn't just given freely, Maurice would do whatever he needed in order to prevent that from happening. Plus, it was likely that, if he thought I could get a body back, that he could too, or even instead... Jade, Herbert asked. We all knew it wasn't her, but, but we also all had to play our individual parts. Hey, brother. Jade's voice sounded with a low, foreign tone to it. Hello, Maurice. Why don't you let go of Jade? Herbert responded. He didn't move from where he stood, but he was convincing enough in his fake plea that even his twin didn't pick up on the falsity. I just hoped he wouldn't be able to detect the lie at any time. Not until we were ready. Maurice, Jade, let out a guttural chuckle. I don't think so. He walked confidently towards Avery and flipped open a pocket knife. Jamali swiftly moved to stand between the spellbound witch and our enemy. With his back to me, I couldn't see his expression but deducted from his body language that he was very protective over Avery. I felt my ghostly body tense up, and I glanced at Frank. He looked at us as if he was ready to rip someone apart. His fists were clenched, and I couldn't help but be taken aback a little by the anger exuding from usually calm and laid-back friend. When I looked over at Duncan, I saw that he was holding his head high, and his jaw was set. He looked ready to fight. Aside from Avery, Herbert looked to be the only one of us relatively keeping his cool. If anything, he looked more beseeching than anything else, 
which was perfect. And why not? Herbert asked his brother. Because I need her right now. Here's what's gonna happen. Instead of getting that little bitch his body back, you're gonna get mine back for me. Then I'll leave Jade, okay? <sighs> On second thoughts, tell me where Annie is as well. Until then, I have to be sure there's a good motivator, and you all seem to be pretty taken with the girl in this body. Maurice responded. He didn't know that we were expecting this. He didn't know that this is exactly what we needed him to do. How can someone who caused so much damage and have been so smart almost every step of the way be that stupid? Well, I guess pride really does come before a fall, I amused myself, being careful not to let anything slip outwardly. All we needed now was to stall him so that Avery could finish what she was doing. While Maurice made his demands... Chimali bent his head towards Avery while placing a hand on the top of her head. His mouth moved as he whispered something to her that no one else was able to hear. I saw Maurice glance at him, but he either didn't notice that the Reaper spoke to her, or he thought it wasn't important. Don't hurt her, Frank demanded in a steady, unyielding tone. Or what? Maurice spat back. He raised the knife to the cheek of Jade's body and pressed the blade across the skin. A thin line of red bubbled to the surface, and Marie smirked with Jade's lips. You bastard! Frank hollered and made a move towards Maurice. He went to grab Jade's throat, but hesitated long enough that Maurice was able to land a punch to his jaw. Frank staggered and took a step back. Please don't, Herbert said. Maurice's eyes flashed to his brother, and he scoffed. You always were weak, he said, before pouncing on Frank. Even in Jade's small body, his minotaur strength overcame my reaper friend, and he quickly had his arms pinned behind him. Frank worked to shake him off, and they both landed on the floor, the tussle moving dangerously close to Avery. Chimali worked to block them from bumping into her. When this failed, he lunged at the two. Both reapers worked to subdue the monster who was finally incapacitated after getting to his feet and then having them yanked out from under him by Duncan. Jade's body fell limp as Maurice let them hold him down. He began to laugh maniacally as the three men used their bodies to keep Jade's poor form pinned against the floor. Nice try, boys. Tell me, Duncan, have you ever had someone inside of you? Maurice locked eyes with Duncan and said through gritted teeth. Tell me, asshole, have you ever had twelve inches of obsidian inside of you? Avery asked out of nowhere. Rolling over from her cross-legged position, she pounced on him and slammed the knife that had been hidden in her lap into Jade's chest. Somehow the witch had managed to get back in the game just in time. The expression on Jade's face morphed to one of shock and surprise, as the person Maurice hadn't expected was the one to make the move. His arm twitched as he floundered his fingers, trying to locate the knife he had only minutes before. 
He found it with his eyes, instead, a few feet away. Chimali said something in his native language that I didn't catch, then gripped the knife in both of his hands. Instead of removing it, he twisted the hilt, similar to the motion of a key in a lock, and left it there. The knife would stay there, buried up to the hilt in Jade's chest, in order to keep the spirit of Maurice trapped. What? Why can't I get out? What did you do to me? Morris yelled and sputtered as he struggled to lift himself out of her body. Duncan, Frank, and Chimali all released their hold on him and stood. Instead of being able to exit the possession, his tries only resulted in spasm-like movements of the flesh-and-blood cage that he was now locked in. It was painful to watch Jade's body begin to form a pool of blood beneath it, as ragged breaths became more and more difficult for it to make. You're locked in, Maurice. You can't hurt anyone else ever again, Herbert spat out, with no attempt to hide the disgust and disdain in his voice. Yeah, and by the way, Annie moved on a long time ago, I added, thinking it sounded tough and final, when it probably sounded like a sad attempt to be part of the gang. We kept silent after that, waiting for the final death throw as Avery returned to her place of magic. She lit of the few previously unlighted candles and began another spell, the one that I assumed would put Jade's body in an undying stasis-like and magic-induced cryogenic sleep. As Jade's body continued to lose life, a hazy, ghost-like version of her appeared, starting from a faint outline and progressing only a fraction of the way I was used to seeing. She wasn't the same as a regular ghost, like Herbert and me. We were unbroken, and appeared relatively solid most of the time. But Jade's appearance was more like a double-exposed photo, a faded form of herself that wasn't meant to be in this scene. Avery, do it now, she commanded gently. Her voice was as faint as her body, and sounded more like a breeze than a human-made noise. She says to do it. Frank spoke aloud to the witch. Avery nodded and began chanting once more. It was different than before, but still in another language. She retrieved a small poppet from under the things in front of her and began to work. The rest of us remained standing and hovering over Jade's body as it took a final breath. I couldn't be sure if the body had lost the ability to breathe because of death or the spell, but I assumed that it was a spell. It was done. I looked at the body form on the floor, and then at the barely visible Jade who stood before me. Talk about an out-of-body experience, she said with a deep breath. No one answered. She would be gone soon, left with no more ties to the living world, and shut out of the world of the dead. Guilt bubbled back to the surface like stomach bile in my throat. I'm so sorry, I choked out, tears beginning to fall. I really was the reason two people were dead now, two amazing and gifted people. I was the reason that Frank was having his heart broken. Everything that had happened was because of me, and there was nothing I could do or say to fix that. I would be plagued with that knowledge for who knew how long. Oh, stop that, Jade said. 
Somehow, her voice managed to ring in my ears, but not the same way a scream might. It was more akin to the soft and steady din of wind chimes caught in a constant breeze. I know what you've been doing, and although I might have been glad to see you beating yourself up a couple of months ago, things are different now. Stop blaming yourself, and stop blaming the real monster. Blame the asshole who actually hurt people, the one who actually broke my spirit. I nodded at her, knowing she had to be right, but I still felt as if I deserved all of the torture I'd undergone. I stared down at the body and lost myself in thought for several moments. The world around me was tuned out, and even though I knew people were talking, I couldn't focus enough to hear what anyone was saying. I hated what I'd been the cause of, but I undoubtedly hated Maurice even more for putting anyone through this. How could anyone be so vile and destructive? When I came back to my senses, I was the only one still standing there with the body. Jamali was gone. Avery was packing everything up. Duncan was in the kitchen from what I could hear. Herbert was seated on the couch with a distant look in his eyes. And Jade and Frank were nowhere to be seen or heard. I approached the couch and sat opposite of Herbert. This was the first time we were left in the same room alone. As uneasy as I expected to feel. There was something about what we'd just gone through together that made all of the stress of our odd connection fade away. You okay? I asked him. He looked at me and began to focus back on reality. Yeah, I'll be fine. There's just been so much to take in recently, he said. Yeah, I know what you mean. I can't believe your own brother could have done those things to you, I said. I have to admit that, in some way, I'm not entirely surprised. Part of me is still shocked at all the lies and how so much of my life wasn't what I thought it was. But then, the other part of me is strangely content with the information, and unshaken by the knowledge that my own brother was a villain. Now, don't get me wrong, it's still disturbing, but, in a way, expect it, he said. I wasn't sure how to respond to that, so we sat in silence for a few minutes. I have to ask, why did you help us? Wouldn't you have wanted Annie to yourself too? I asked, breaking the silence. Herbert looked at me with a grin. Nah, I had my time with her, and as much as I loved her, there was never a doubt that you were her one. I was just lucky to have a chance to share time with her in your absence. We did have a good life, Xander, but don't think for a second that she ever stopped loving you. I knew she didn't, and I had to make peace with that a long time ago. I have to admit I was a little jealous, though, trying to fill your shoes, but, but you're not the only one who was separated from a lover by death. Maybe she wasn't my soulmate. Maybe she was. But there is someone I never really got the chance with. I think I need to find her now that we're on the same side. I shared his smile and watched him stand up. He patted me on the shoulder as he walked by, towards the front door. I opened it, and I saw Jade and Frank enter the house. Jade looked even mistier now, like a dense swarm of gnats in the shape of a person. Jade and Herbert shared some words as Frank stood stoically beside her. All right, everything is set up. I'll be out of here in a few hours, and the body will be taken care of. 
Duncan announced as he joined us in the living room. Avery snapped her case shut and locked it before standing and wheeling it to the growing group. I followed her and joined everyone in the circle being formed. We said our bittersweet goodbyes and thank yous to one another. Avery was the first to leave and we all wished her well, even though she still scared me a bit. Once Jade was gone for good, Frank would take Herbert and me back to the afterworld, while Duncan left to hide the body somewhere safe and begin a new life where, hopefully, the Ashton group couldn't find him. As he finished his preparations for leaving, Frank and Jade secluded themselves in a bedroom to share her final moments. When I watched her walk away with him, I felt all of the pain of losing Annie and related to how horrible Frank must be feeling right now. Herbert and I were left again in the living room to wait. When Frank returned to the living room ten minutes later, no words were needed, and I knew that none could be spoken that had power to lessen that pain. Jade was gone. Duncan joined us once more and lit a cigarette in his mouth. He gestured for me to join him back in the kitchen. I obliged, confused. When I entered the kitchen... I saw a computer open and a blank document waiting for words. I know you've been documenting things, and this is probably your only chance to get this final chapter done, he said. I can't type, though. Jade's not... I trailed off. He put out his cigarette in an ashtray near the computer and chuckled. She wasn't the only medium in the world. Come on, let's get this done before we all have to go he said. I nodded and stepped into his body. From Frank. I only thought it right to truly conclude Xander's journey since he couldn't do it himself. When Xander and Duncan were finished with their work, I took him and Herbert by the hand and within seconds we were back to the plane between the living world and the afterworld. As always, the waiting room was full of muted colors with an empty and desolate feeling. Somehow, it felt even more empty to me than usual, and I think it felt the same for Xander. I let go of the two men, and Xander looked at me quizzically, not understanding why we were there instead of continuing on to the world of apartments and portal markets. What's going on, Frank? He asked me. This is your stop, buddy, I answered with a grim smile. He raised an eyebrow and looked as if he was about to ask me something, but caught a glimpse of the door that appeared. It was various shades of blue, constantly in motion, unlike a natural, solid door. Blue door? Is that what I think it is? Xander looked at me. I nodded at him and watched him turn to completely face me. Herbert walked a short distance to respectively give us a bro moment. It's your time to start again. It feels like everything happened so quickly lately, I sighed. You've got that right. Am I even ready? He asked me. I nodded. I think you're past the point of being ready, and you deserve this. I'm sorry about Jade, he said, with an emphatic expression. Don't be, I said, shaking my head. The pain in my heart was intense, but I had to keep it together. I'll find her. I'll figure something out. 
Xander looked at me with a sort of awe. He'd never seen me so determined before. I think he was slightly begging whatever forces were at work to help me succeed. In that moment, it felt like we both understood that I would stop at nothing until I found her and made things right for her death. Good luck, he said, and extended a hand for me to shake. I gave him a comical look and pulled him in for a hug. Good luck to you, my friend. I'll see you again sometime, even if it isn't really you. I told him. Xander smiled after releasing the hug. He turned his back to me and faced the blue door. It was the last door of the current cycle of life and death that he would walk through. He took two steps forward and reached for the knob. Taking a deep breath, he turned it, and the door opened to a blinding light, brighter and purer than anything else on the planet. He looked over his shoulder one last time to wave at me, and then... He stepped through and became part of the light. Epilogue A young woman walked quietly in the dimming light. The evening had come on rapidly with the aid of the storm clouds above. It was only seven, but the world around her was dull and glum, foretelling a night full of rain and thunder. She loved it. As she felt the pregnant clouds produce the first drops of rain, she paused and looked towards the sky. A handful of tiny droplets of water splashed against her cheeks, forehead and chin. The woman smiled and lowered her face back to look at the street ahead of her, and she continued on her way. Cars passed her as she walked along the sidewalk, tires finding their way over slight dips in the road that she knew would soon become puddles. Other pedestrians rushed to reach their destinations before the downpour began. She didn't mind it, though. There was something about the rain that had always made her feel calm. A short bridge loomed ahead. It was sturdy, having been rebuilt over eighty years ago and maintained meticulously and prudently. The only piece of the bridge that showed its age was a bronze plaque set into one of the squat pillars that marked the entrance of the bridge's sidewalk. It reminded people of sorrow, of those who perished when the bridge collapsed. The woman stopped before entering between the stone posts. She lingered, reading the words on the plaque, as she had done countless times before. Her lips moved, and she softly mouthed the words without saying them aloud. Tragedy struck the hearts of our town. We use this to remember the 32 lives lost with the bridge collapse of 2016. To live in hearts we leave behind is not to die. Thomas Campbell When she was a little girl, her parents would lead her over the bridge to one of her favorite parks. She was always ecstatic to play on the swings and run around in the soft grass. She would barely be able to contain herself, skipping and jumping, squealing and clapping, begging her parents to move faster so she could get to the playground sooner. Every time they neared the bridge, however, her excitement would cease. The walk over the water would be almost morose. She would cling to her parents' hands and look around, feeling an utter sadness that she couldn't explain. Once both feet were off the bridge, she'd be back at it, excited and giggling. Her parents never understood why the bridge seemed to bother her so, but it was only a small, inconsequential thing, so they paid it no mind. She thought about it from time to time as she grew, 
but could never answer the question for herself either. Once she could read, she would stop and read the brief memorial message before stepping onto the bridge. It became a sort of ritual for her. It didn't matter if she was in a hurry or needed to get across the bridge quickly. The moment she stepped in front of that weathered bronze rectangle, the world around her would cease for just a moment as she could read each word carefully. It was almost as if there was a hidden meaning that she couldn't quite grasp. Sometimes she would trace a few of the letters with her fingers, but no matter how she showed it reverence, the mystery of why she felt so affected by the bridge would never be revealed. Today was one of the days that she reached out and touched the cold metal, feeling the raised letters begin to get wet. Were you related to someone who was lost that day? A male voice came from over her shoulder, startling her enough to make her jump a little. Her fingers fell from the tiny lettering at the bottom that read, Donated by the Ashton Group. And she turned to face the speaker. No, it just makes me sad, she said in a soft voice to the man, danced like a melody with the sound of the rain beginning to fall around the two. The second her eyes met his, she knew there was something about him that she couldn't quite put her finger on. He was handsome, sure, but there was something deeper that she felt, something familiar yet distant at the same time. She couldn't say that she recognized his face, but something inside of her sparked with some manner of recognition. I know what you mean. He shared a small, comforting smile with her, his eyes never leaving her. The expression on his face made the woman wonder if he felt similar to how she did. What she couldn't know was that he did feel the same. His mind raced as to why this beautiful woman made him feel like he'd just found something he lost long ago. Do I know you? She asked him curiously, her mind racing to try to place his image in her memories. I don't think so. I'm Maxwell. Max for short he replied, and extended a hand through the growing rain to her. She took his hand and gave it a polite shake. I'm Rochelle. That's lovely. Well, Rochelle, what do you say we walk the sad bridge together? Perhaps we won't be as melancholy that way, Max offered, gesturing to the walkway in front of them that spanned over the bridge. Rochelle wasn't the type to just connect with a stranger, but she felt herself nodding and leading him past the plaque and onto the bridge. Two sets of eyes watched the young couple meet and begin their walk, side by side, across the same bridge that had separated a pair of lovers decades before. Jade tilted her head up to look at Frank, her gaze flitting between the bridge and Frank's eyes. He smiled down at her and nodded before kissing her forehead. No words were needed to be said between the two. They both knew what they saw. At last, Alexander and Annie would get to spend their lives together. Well, I don't know about you, but oh, that's exactly how I wanted that to end. Whew. Okay, well, 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that one. Oh, well, a bit lost for words right now. Um, next video will be coming up in just a couple of days, so please join me again. Okay? You know I'll be waiting for you, don't you? Of course you do. Okay? Until then, sweet dreams and bye-bye. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time listening to me. Now, if you enjoyed the Dr. Creepin experience, then come find me on Facebook. Come chat with me on Twitter. Listen to the background music and download it if you like on SoundCloud. Drop by the store, pick up a t-shirt. And, importantly, if you've got a story you'd like me to read, send it to Dr. Creepin's vault, the subreddit I set up so that I could read your stories. Now, Looking forward to seeing you all again real soon. So, come check me out, okay? <laughs> <laughs>